0: Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, capital's most potent organ of enclosing, commodifying, and selling any form of anti-capitalist action. This week's episode is on capitalist realism by Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher, born in 1968, was an English philosopher, teacher, blogger, and writer, among many other things. He was a founding member of the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit at the University of Warwick, working with people such as Sadie Plant and Nick Land, and was friends with the producer Code9. He started the K-Punk blog in 2003, writing about music, film, culture, depression, and basically anything else he found interesting or relevant. Tragically, Fisher killed himself in 2017, at the age of 48, leaving behind a wife and child. Capitalist Realism was published in 2009 through Zero Books a publisher which Fisher co-founded. Capitalist realism is, in short, about the sense that there is no alternative to capitalism, the sense that culture has stagnated and that, whatever misgivings we may have, the future's trajectory will be a continuation of that which prevailed in the 2000s. Fisher expected capitalist realism to be only a minor work. He stated that he'd be happy if it sold 500 copies. It went on to sell over 100,000 copies, gaining traction largely through word of mouth and influencing anti-capitalist movements across the whole world. On the subject of capitalism, if you like what we're doing with this podcast and want to support us, we have a Patreon account, the link to which is in the show notes. People on Patreon can access the notes I make for episodes, so long as that episode warrants coherent notes, and we also release bonus content, bonus episodes for, for people who want to pay us on Patreon, really. As well as that, I've published a novel called Tower, a surreal, absurd journey involving the medical treatment of souls, a tower who remakes the world in its image, amphetamines, and a talking hat. You can find Tower on Amazon or on Apple Books, the links to which are in the show notes. So if you're ready to tear a hole in the grey curtain of reaction, then listen on. Enjoy. So this is a book that we've had requested a number of times, actually, and having read it, I can now see why. Because both, both Levi and I have made it very clear that I think at several points, basically in every episode, that we like many aspects of capitalism. And it'll be interesting, actually, before we start really getting into the, the meat of what capitalist realism is, to say what we think capitalism is and what we think Mark Fisher, in discussing capitalist realism, thought capitalism was. Yeah. Because those... How people define capitalism... In the same way as how people define socialism or communism, for example, tends to be quite variant. There, there's yeah. not really a single
1: definition that people like to And you need to, on. at least for the purpose of any particular conversation, make sure you're talking about the same thing.
0: Yeah, uh, and many heated arguments over these various... Exactly. Many of these heated arguments over these systems, oftentimes people just be arguing completely different things. Like yeah.
1: their yeah. definitions will so be... So we're trying to get on the same page. Adults. Yeah as uh, as as mark so yeah it's it's interesting so anti-capitalist was, book sorry go on go on uh, yeah so i was gonna say sorry uh, it's an anti-capitalist book and <laughs> if anybody's listened to our uh like ayn rand uh, atlas shrugged episode or uh, or our um sovereign individual sovereign individual or rothbard episode he's <laughs> just like uh know how much levi likes that sort of uh, <laughs> masturbatory uh, <laughs> um, libertarianism. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, it's good to read something, and also I think like our previous anti-capitalist books haven't necessarily been that serious. <clears throat> Man, I'm all yeah, blo- think- I'm all blocked up today. Sorry.
0: In um, terms of serious ones, so the, the yeah. Conquest of Bread was at least written seriously. It's it's a sort of thing where really outside a certain Really, outside left anarchist circles, people don't take it particularly seriously. So, Marxists don't take it particularly seriously. Capitalists don't take it particularly seriously. But that yeah. was "Conquest of Bread" by Kropotkin was yeah. was written seriously,
1: and the Manifesto
0: was written seriously.
1: Yeah, but I guess how seriously I would take take it as a set of ideas. Yeah, less um, less seriously. There were central yes, ideas in that I thought were really interesting, like this idea of
0: if, <laughs> if nature has allotted biological women mm. certain, but certain physical characteristics that make them oppressed, then change nature. I thought that was a really cool idea yeah. and actually a yeah, yeah. new perspective. But in terms of things that are directly addressed against capitalism, capitalist realism is the most compelling that I've read, at least for this podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, what was your attitude going into the book, Jack?
0: I was not feeling charitable to the book going into it because, like I've I've spent far too long at university in my life, and <laughs> I've come across many and people who would I, reprimand you for that. Yeah, he <laughs> he would reprimand me for a large number of things in his funny British American accent, <laughs> but. I've come across a lot of people who proclaim to be anti-capitalist who are actually quite well described by Mark Fisher in this book and also in other essays of his that I read on the basis of having enjoyed capitalist realism, such as Exit from the Vampire Castle. He describes him as being, it's sort of, it's, it's a puritanical left or a sanctimonious left that people who actually live in a way that fully supports capitalism and instead of Organizing to structurally change capitalism, they instead focus on games of status and of public moral moral purity, and a lot of scolding each other and other people for not for not behaving according to a a set of quite prescriptive moral norms that they like. So I've had a lot of contact with those sort of people, and those sort of people have poisoned for me the notion of being anti-capitalist because they'll often very, very publicly identify themselves with being anti-capitalist. And I unfairly lumped in Fisher's capitalist realism with that group of people, and that's on me. And he's, he's not part of that. He, at mm. various mm. points during his life, tr- agitated against the left, at least in the, the United Kingdom, becoming dominated by what he saw as, in the main, quite wealthy middle-class or upper-class university-educated leftists who are much more interested in this sort of uh, pu- public leftist moralising rather than what he saw as the role of the left, which was organising the working classes such that they could overcome capitalism. So he, mm. Mm. his project I find much more compelling, actually. And, yeah, my biases against this book going in were unfounded and reflect my own prejudices rather than the quality of this book. How and, about you? How do uh, you feel going into it?
1: Yeah, I would say maybe not as hostile as you. I don't yeah. know why. Like when you suggested the book, well, one, no, I think it's got a cool title. Like Capitalist yeah. Realism," just sounds like a cool title. Um, and then, I, I don't know. Can you hear that chopper in the back? Is that coming through? Should I close Every off? now and then, yeah. Maybe close your window.
0: Oh, damn, okay. Give me one no, it, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just keep going. Okay. Get to
1: the chopper. Get to it's, the. Ch- it's it's probably like a um an ambulance chopper. So, <laughs> um, I hope they're I hope they're okay whoever they are. The uh, capitalist realist
0: police have realized that we're about to discuss how yeah. to exit capitalist realism. <laughs> we're about to SWAT
1: Levi. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I went in, I think a little bit, not necessarily more charitable to just, I was just interested to see Mm. what it was like. Cool title is, and, uh, it had an interesting subtitle. Like, is there, is there really no alternative? alternative. It's like, Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting premise for a book. And I guess I have been thinking a lot recently about, uh, actually reflecting on this podcast, like, uh, when we've done, uh, like non-capitalist or anti-capitalist or whatever, um, positions. I, I just thought like, uh, I didn't really take them seriously enough. Did I like to be honest? And then when we had, you know, like the Rothbard episode or whatever, I was just like, Oh, you know, like I'll try to be a bit more, um, like f- f- flexible in my thinking rather than just mm. like, not just blazing um, Rothbard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Trying to update. So it was actually like well-timed. There's another book that, uh, We've been recommended for some anti-capitalist stuff as well. Uh that I think is on the reading list somewhere. Um Which one? Uh, I'll say I can't remember. I'll see if I can like well, I won't look at it now because it's oh, we'll just distracting. It but yeah, there'll there'll be stuff. Uh yeah. and I've been interested in reading uh I haven't bought it yet. Oh, I just bought it then when we we're getting ready for the show. But uh there's this book, uh Capitalism and Schizophrenia, I think it's called <laughs> Anti, yeah. Anti-Oedipus by Deleuze and what's his name? Guttery. Yeah, yeah. Guttery, who influenced uh, who influenced Mark Fisher. And, hmm. yeah, I've been meaning to read that book for a while because one of my friends is like a really big Deleuze fan. So I so, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I've so both, I was both volumes of that on my
0: bookshelf and I've just, I've been too scared to start because they're <laughs> so dense. It's
1: just fucked. <laughs> yeah, so I went in a little bit. Yeah kind of more more willing to or, like, more mm. open to reading anti-capitalist stuff than I have in the past. Yeah, because I think if you're actually going to hold a position, like, you know, especially if we're doing this sort of podcast when we're putting our thoughts out there and stuff and we like, capitalists and we should be able to, like, actually, you know, engage with the alternative ideas and stuff. I think that's important.
0: Yeah. Uh, this was a good corrective for me to make me... Just take a step back and stop being such a jackass.
1: <laughs> so on that note, before we move on to the context of, of the book, uh, how has your how has your view of the book changed at a high level now before we jump into the rest of the episode?
0: Yeah. Well my my view of the book is much more reflective of what the book is actually
1: about. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. <laughs> that
0: uh, helps a lot. It's a really nice book. It's very short. My edition's eighty. You always maybe get points 80, in Jack's book if you're short. Pages. <laughs> It's not so much being short; it's not wasting time that I care about more. And Fisher really doesn't mm-hmm. waste time in this book. There's one chapter, the one on dream work, that I found less compelling, but even even that it wasn't a waste of time. So it, it's really to the point. It brings up real problems that, and a the sense that there is no alternative is definitely something that I've felt. And so it was really interesting to have that, that feeling verbalized by someone else at length and then both discussed as how this feeling of there being no alternative can arise as well as possible exits and begging the question, do you want to exit? If you do want to exit, how do you do that within a system that at least seems to commodify every attempt to subvert it and in commodifying it, uh, integrate it into the system of capitalism and capitalist realism. So I, I'm much more interested in reading more anti-capitalist literature in the vein of Mark Fisher. I've, I have already read more things by Mark Fisher on the strength of capitalist realism. Mm, mm. And while I've been, largely yeah. because of Nick Land, wanting to read more Deleuze, uh, because I, I read the, I think it's Postscript on the Societies of Control by Deleuze because it was referenced in Capitalist Realism, but I'll probably take the plunge on Deleuze and Guattari at some point soon. One, one of their more substantial works. Having read this, is it worth is it worth con- <clears throat> is it worth considering doing it for the show? I'm not so sure because it would be a time investment to the point where I doubt we could do weekly uploads if we were reading that. Okay. okay. Sure, because uh, it, it's it's a lot worse than Spengler in terms of difficulty. Oh no, far out! <laughs> and then there's uh, th- then there's the length of it, and also there's a great deal of discussion of capitalism and schizophrenia, for example. And so I guess you know, Oh yeah, fair. Actually, the, no, the, that's the question is, yeah. what would we be adding to it as two people? Who Nothing. <laughs> who we would be just adding like anything. dilettantes <laughs> when it comes to this sort of thing. I suppose yeah, for a certain type. The comedy of us struggling through it might be <laughs> might be engaging enough, but for Fine. most, it's probably not. so Look at
1: these two monkeys trying to yeah. read Deleuze. Yeah, nice one. Yeah. Okay. Cool.
0: Well, um, my Actually, how was your how was your view of the anti capitalist landscape changed, or has it changed on the basis of reading this book?
1: Yeah, it has. I'm. You know, when I, I was younger, I'd even say, like on on this podcast a co- couple of years ago, like or throughout, you know, the last couple of years, I'm trying to be more, as I said before, like flexible in the way that I think about alternative points of view. And I guess overall, my feeling is that he he makes some really interesting points, and I think, like in general, anti capitalist people uh, make They've got some really uh, interesting points and uh, point out really, at times, really important problems. And I think that's valuable. And, you know, you know, like sometimes I think some of the things that they think are problems are not really problems, but, you know, that's sort of not as important. They're, they're trying to find these... They've got these criticisms and it's good to listen to them. Uh, and... Yeah, I guess I still, I feel as though there's some pretty substantial um, misunderstandings that Mark Fisher had. And it seems as though like other people in his tradition also have, I I think. Uh, and that leads them like down kind of intellectual garden paths that I think mm-hmm. like um, they have, for whatever reason, they haven't picked up. Um, I Well, I think I know why they haven't picked it up, uh, but like... Uh, yeah, so that's that's yeah, it's it's interesting. And I'm a little bit more open to it, and especially because Mark is a good writer. And he writes very clearly. And he's not like other people in his tradition in that kind of school of philosophers like Deleuze and stuff who are notorious for being just impenetrable. There's mm. uh one of the one of the guys, um, who's one of the other major not Zizek, one of the other major um philosophers that he keeps on referencing. He's like download. He 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 wrote this book called. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I'm really like blocked. Like, Very flanny. Flanny yeah. Today. Sorry, I'll try and drink some more water. Um. uh he he wrote this book about uh like postmodernism as the culture of. Capitalism. Oh, Frederick Jameson. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I downloaded that book. I, I, yeah, uh, I want to read that book. And I started reading. I only read one paragraph, and I was just like, "This is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> like, this, is, this is absolutely impenetrable. There's no way that this guy is writing for a general audience or anything like this. This well, is just, a, yeah, this is just for other philosophers in his school. Um, there is there is a certain prose
0: style of continental philosophers and people people in the sphere who like continental philosophers and it does seem intentionally
1: obscure and I find it extremely irritating. Yeah. Whereas as uh Mark Fisher, he had a little bit of that. Like there was some moments I was like, okay, like you're just, you're writing in a way that's like other people, like you really have to have like already sort of like bought the Kool-Aid and like read some of the other philosophers and stuff. And without some of that background knowledge, it was a little bit, but you know, like for the most part, he didn't do that. Not like some of the other people in, in, in from those, those sorts of like schools of philosophy. Mm. Uh, he was largely a very accessible writer. And I think that partly explains why this was a massive success of a book. It was a huge success. Like a huge success. Like was it, he sold like 20,000 copies or something like in the first uh, I think year. Or so. or a hundred thousand something like just the timing of it and the accessibility of the writing. And he already had a bit of a blog Going so he had a, over a hundred thousand sales
0: in English alone,
1: and so yeah, like it's a massive success. Really interesting yeah. book, and-, and largely word of
0: mouth, and yeah. published through a a publishing house, Zero Books, that he co-founded.
1: Yeah, that's super impressive. So it's super impressive. Like uh yeah, really cool. Um, and yeah, really interesting and thought provoking book. Even if I still have my disagreements with kind of the fundamentals, but. Um, yeah, so my view is actually, he's brought me around a little bit. To, if we'd read something else that was anti-capitalist, that was just like impenetrable, maybe it would have hardened my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: well, with, the, with the, it's interesting that you brought up the clarity of his writing because I think that is a, an important part of the appeal of this book because with many anti-capitalist authors who are influenced by continental philosophy, particularly French continental philosophy, I get sometimes get the feeling that they are writing in an obscure way to cover up the fact that a lot of the things they're saying aren't actually particularly interesting. Whereas with Mark Fisher, like you said, he writes very, very clearly. And also when he brings in certain concepts like the big other or the real, that sort of thing, most of the time he will explain roughly what those things are and how they relate to his argument. So you don't have to keep stepping away from his book to to look up terms and and try to work out what he means. There are only a few times when he said things I think it was particularly when he was I think when he was critiquing Nick Land, which is a, a former colleague of his at the CCIU, the University of Warwick, when he was talking about how the I think it's pure capitalism in the sense of Nick Land cannot exist because capitalism requires the re-territorializing, re-territorializing tendencies and conspicuous waste, which I assume are things that Deleuze said at some point, but I, my knowledge of Deleuze is extremely poor, so I just don't know. And so when you read things like that, I think yeah, this actually hasn't clarified anything for me. But at the same time, he's done a really, really good job of integrating a large corpus of obscure work and then rendering it, for the most part, very, very accessible, which is a real achievement in itself. Yeah, really impressive. So,
1: cool. That's our opening (laughs) thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Opening thoughts. Um, So, when was the book published? 2009. All right, so we're going to get into context. Um, So, yeah, this book was published in 2009. so So, Mark Fisher's British. He was at the University of Warwick, and I believe he, uh, like, grew up in England, right? So, yep. Um, and, yeah, he published this book, but I think he must have been writing it for a while, like, it's piecing together his thoughts for like, over, over you know, more than just a year or so. But he published it in 2009, which was, like, peak of the financial crisis. Yeah, it's... The story of the book's interesting, because he wrote... he.
0: He taught, I think he taught philosophy. He wrote a lot of more technical works and he started, he co-founded, I forget with whom, Zero Books, a publishing house because he was having trouble getting stuff published because he's been, at least when it comes to what he described as in the, I think his essay, Exit from the Vampire Castle, The Sanctimonious Left, he's been very critical of them and they've largely been dominant in University leftist circle, mm, so he was kind mm. of on the outside. So, it kind of cool way to get published. Start, well, co founded a publishing house, which I have a lot of respect for, and then sell a hundred thousand copies of a book. <laughs> like yeah. that's pretty and that's he, pretty baller. <laughs> I think he was he was wanting to write something longer and more in depth than capitalist realism, and initially, I think his editors and the other people at the publishing house were a bit miffed, that he presented to him to them this 80-page manuscript, something really, really short. And he, was, he wasn't convinced that it was going to be particularly successful. He was very, very doubtful that it would do well. And it ended up striking a chord and selling really well, largely through word of mouth, because this, this wasn't a huge publishing house with a lot of advertising resources at its disposal. And it was just after the global financial crisis, or when the global financial crisis was still really hurting, during austerity, during, in the United Kingdom, New Labour under Tony Blair and subsequently Gordon Brown. I forget when Gordon Brown replaced Blair, but it was at a time when people like Fisher on the left felt very, very disillusioned because, to his mind, the Labour Party had become almost the most neoliberal party in the United Kingdom, which is not unreasonable new labor was quite neoliberal and instituted or deepened a lot of the things that in this book he identifies as real issues with neoliberalism like like the the constant PR machine of auditing for self-surveillance for example in education and healthcare. at that time too there was and having for the zoomers out there who don't remember the GFC that there was a feeling in the lead up to it that there was, we'd kind of got it, that there wouldn't be major changes from how the world was currently run, that it seemed this was how it was going to be. I think there was a widespread feeling of that, at least in the West. And even after the GFC, and probably up until the mid-20-teens, that Trump changed things, I think, there was the feeling that even if you didn't particularly like how things were going, this increasingly bureaucratized, state interventionist, interventionist capitalism, that was just how things were going to be because that was what was realistic and efficient and it would outcompete other things and you couldn't really escape from that. And there was that sense of cultural deadening, which was, was the, the milieu into which this book was published and under which this book was written. While I think things have changed, there is a greater sense now that things could change, although the shape of that change is less clear. The book, I I think, is still relevant, but certain things in the book feel of their time,
1: of 2009. Yeah, and it seems as though he was also speaking quite... Obviously, because he's British, and a lot of the topics mm. that he references are about British politics and like the British higher education system and so forth. Uh, I think he was speaking as well to like a the cultural climate of mm. Mm. Uh, England in particular, yeah. um, which might have been a bit different, say, in other Western countries. Uh, yeah, because there was also things like the um, like uh, Occupy movement and stuff that came out around the yeah. time which was like a bit more anarchist and stuff so yeah really interesting really interesting context and uh yeah it just goes to show like i mean his book sales speak for himself as an unknown yeah or and it's way. still selling and it's still and people still talk about it and at least in the copy that i've got uh it's got i i assume that you've got the same copy but it, it's uh it's got this foreword i think or an introduction by one of his colleagues or you know somebody who read mm. his who read it his wife also and his wife and right yeah but in particular, yeah, like the, the the other person who's not his wife like a co- colleague or whatever um who read it who said uh they had this profound sense of i don't know what the right word would be like alienation or whatever and uh but didn't have necessarily an explanatory framework or whatever to make sense of it and then mm. when he read capitalist realism it gave him it, ma- it helped him make sense in his on, in his telling or in his, his perspective. And obviously I think if you also go and look at like stuff online, people discussing it, it seems to have hit a thread. Uh, so mm. hit, hit mm. a nerve with people and uh, yeah, apparently it, people find it really compelling. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Which is often how these sort of really, really influential books work, that there are these latent energies that aren't mm. verbalised mm. or aren't particularly precise that are, a widespread and eventually someone is able to to verbalise or make more explicit those latent energies and it mm. catches on. And I think that is what happened with capitalist realism. So because like you said, pe- people are still talking about it. People are still asking
1: yeah. us to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so just before we move on to definitions, so Jack and I uh, thought that it would be good at the start to talk a little bit about definitions. Uh, so about like what is capitalism that sort of stuff. Uh, but just before we get into that, Uh, I, while I was reading it, Jack, I thought that you might find it really interesting. So anybody who's read Jack's book, Tower by Jack B.C., get it on, I don't know. Amazon. Amazon. Is it on a bookshed or anything or... Anyways, uh, I should I should do a books on Amazon and iBooks. Okay, so go to Jack BC. Is it Jack BC me or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Jack BC and, Jack BC and tower, me. You'll notice that J A C K B C dot me. <laughs> That's Jack before Christ. He is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Jack he, Book Club. You can also call him Father that Abraham. That is my name. Jack or Father Abraham are acceptable. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, uh, like Jack's book has, uh, I would say there's a if not an anti-capitalist thread to it definitely a capitalist critical uh undertone to it and yeah because you've been thinking about this like technological capitalist stuff for a bit and uh yeah i thought did, did you have any did it make you think about your own writing much reading this this particular concept yeah a lot
0: yeah so it, <laughs> it's combination of writing tower reading Thirst for Annihilation, at the moment by Nick Land. And Nick Land was a colleague of, of Mark Fisher's in the CCIU. And you, you can really see that the two of them knew each other, had worked together, had talked to each other, because there are a lot of similar preoccupations in this book, particularly particularly exit. And what Nick Land means by, or exit from what, in the context of Nick Land, is different from that of Mark Fisher. Mark, Mark Fisher's much more tied to human beings than, than Nick Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> perhaps a little more practical as well, but <laughs> both, of, both of them are reacting to this sense of, it's still something that I think of as technique, of a collection of standardised behaviours that lead to standardised outputs with the the goal of optimizing for efficiency and of ultimate efficiency being the end point. And that I, I keep bringing up Jacques Ayloul because that was the first place where I came across this idea of technique. Tower was very much written as me thinking about technique and a lot of what Fisher talks about in capitalist realism I see as addressing technique. So, for example, the, when we talk about market Stalinism, which might be my favorite concept in this book, it's a, it is such a useful concept that I've already used it internally to, to think about things. This, this idea of producing almost a lowest or a, a local minimum of an energetic state in a system, optimizing for efficiency that leads to these really strange situations where no one within the system likes it, but everyone is almost compelled to behave in a way as to promote the system's survival because of, of a set of local incentives and local circumstances struck me as highly technical. And so I suppose that's where the, maybe where you see the, the intersection between uh, Fisher's anti-capitalism and my nervousness about the advance
1: of technique being. Yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. That's That's super interesting. Like maybe, you know, maybe we'll see, some of the concepts from this book in your subsequent writing. (laughs) Subsequent writing. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Okay, so definitions, hey? Why don't we get into it? Yeah. So before we can really say like, what is capitalist realism? Obviously, that's a very important thing. Uh, Mm, mm, mm. We sort of thought that it would be good to talk just a little bit more about capitalism and make sure that we're at least, even if we get it wrong and actually like Mark Fisher's ideas of what capitalism are, uh, actually, different to what we're about to describe. Uh, at least we've made an attempt to try to like say what we think his understanding is. <laughs> so we're not we're not mm. like a- accidentally talking past him. So Jack, what is? Uh, should we should we say like what is your understanding? or what, what is? Should we start with the Marxist understanding or like what do you reckon? Or just I reckon the general? Start off, just the general.
0: let's start off with the the Marxist definition of capitalism yeah, first, cool. because that's what I. When I read this book, this was my assumption as to what Fisher meant when he talked about capitalism and capital C, capital, that, that he was referring to the Marxist definition. I had to revise this because I read capital maybe a decade ago, so I, like, I, I couldn't remember off the top of my head the, the precise definition, and I might get it wrong. Shout out to Moog, who will correct us on the Discord if we do miss Marxist these definitions. When Fisher talks about capitalism and capital, uh, the, the Marxist definition, which I assume he was following, is that, so first, no, we talk about capital. So capital is the accumulation of money and can't arise in history until the circulation of commodities has given rise to the money relation. And now there are a few definitions here that I should lay out so that this makes sense, and also so that capitalist realism makes sense. So first of all, maybe the, defi- the difference between money and as capital and money as money is really in the circulation of the money, how the money circulates. Money is simply money when it's used to facilitate the exchange of commodities. Money becomes capital when it's used to buy something in order to sell it again. And as such, capitalism isn't just wealth, but it's this wealth that grows from the process of its circulation. Yeah. You also need, there, there are a few conditions that need to be met for wealth to become capital or money to become capital. So people need to be able to produce more than they need to live as a result of the development of the forces of production. And this this lets them have surplus labor left over each day after they've worked to produce that, that amount that they would need to live. And at which, presumably, if there weren't a capitalist system, they'd just stop producing because they don't need to make more stuff. So... There also has to be this class of free labourers who've got nothing to sell but their ability to work and they don't have another way to earn a living. And this is the proletariat. You also need a class of people who own the means of production as private property, the bourgeoisie, and these are the people who are able to take that surplus labour that the, the proletariat undertakes, that labour beyond which they would normally work to fulfil their own needs. And the capitalists kind of skimming stuff skimming wealth off the top of that, which is is accumulating capital. In this, so I've, I've used the term commodity a few times, and this is really important in the Marxist definition of capitalism. And it, it's important, too, in capitalist realism, because particularly in the first, maybe third of the book, he talks about the capitalist drive to just keep commodifying things, which leads to a lot of the desacralization, the... The ironization of everything, the lack of reverence in anything, because everything's getting flattened into this fungible commodity state. So, a commodity is something that's produced for the purposes of exchanging it for something else. And I, th- I think, and Marxist in the audience, please correct me if I'm wrong on this. It's also something that satisfies a human want. So, labor exchange to meet someone else's needs. S- in order that the laborer can then meet their own needs, that is in return for a payment, is a commodity. A good or a service performed by a person for their own immediate consumption is not a commodity. So if you're working, you make something, and it's just for you, that's not a commodity. If you make it such that you exchange it with someone else, that they they give you something in return, and that something is something you need to live, then it, it becomes a commodity. And so... Note that if someone makes something for someone else in order to satisfy that other person's needs but not to satisfy their own needs, then it's not a commodity. For example, like cooking or cleaning for a loved one. Like that, that cooking or cleaning labor is not a commodity. because It's not like you're doing it for the other person such that they give you stuff that you satisfy your needs. You're doing it just for that person because you you love them or you care for them. Something like that. This then brings us to finally, I've, I've taken a while to lead up to this, the definition of capitalism. So capitalism is a socioeconomic system where the social relations between people are based on commodities for exchange. That is private ownership of the means of production and using wage labor to, to fuel these uh, fuel production of commodities, which generates capital, which
1: accumulates for capitalists,
0: mm. immiserating the, mm. the proletariat. Yeah. And
1: importantly, as well, there's this the important function of like the money. Um, what do you say? It's like is wage labor, but um, just to unpack wage a little bit, a, a little bit more, there's this important concept of like that being based on mm. like a uh, uh, a money that you're paying the labor Yeah. In. Yeah. Obviously, from, from wage. Um, yeah. I think those were some of the key points. I, th- I think you covered everything.
0: I mean, I hope I have it. I had I had to revise this because my my Marxist knowledge is rusty and I'm liable to make mistakes. So I hope I did at least a you know a high level view of of the Marxist definitions of capital, yeah. capitalism, commodities, <laughs> and probably capitalist, capitalism, and commodities are the three Marxist definitions that are really useful in understanding where fish is coming from. Yeah in capitalist realism so there's
1: there's one other important point that i'll add to that i think we've pretty much covered everything that's important but like what one other thing in that sphere of ideas uh is that uh there's a, a problem of like why do people uh give up one thing to get another thing whether it's mm. giving up labor to get some money or selling a commodity to get some money or selling trading at one commodity for another commodity or whatever um, so you could deliver this in an Austrian accent <laughs> Actually, I'm not going to try and do an Austrian accent <laughs> just, just every time I try to do every time I try to do accents it's just terrible uh so yeah just <laughs> those days are over um, so, <laughs> so uh uh yeah so it's it's uh sometimes described as the water diamond paradox like why does why why is water because it's you know it's so essential but it's so cheap in a place like london or whatever but yet diamonds are not essential but they're so expensive and uh lots of economists tried to deal with this even uh smith was trying to think through this stuff and uh Smith came up with what's called the, like the, what I call, I don't know if other people call it, but I call it the input theory of value. So where does something get its value from? It gets it from its inputs. It's like the cost of production. Mm. And then I don't know, maybe the seller or the producer adds some margin to it and then you get the price. And in Smith, Smith was thinking that like the market is essentially like some, uh kind of a computation like to use a modern one way of phrasing these things like a computation that's trying to find the objective true value of something and uh yeah it's yeah it's idea of like value versus price basically they're trying to like trying to figure like what's the difference between value and price <sighs> one of the important concepts that marx had and again Apology to all the Marxists in the audience if uh, we, oh, we I, I think I know where you are. And I, yes, no, I just not, totally forgot to bring this I'm up. Not, this is I'm not so gonna important. like talk about like like my disagreements or anything with that. I'll just try it, just uh, <laughs> uh, is this idea of like equivalence relations. So uh, like Marx in Marx's opinion or in Marx's description, uh, you uh, you exchange one thing for another because at least you perceive those things as equivalent in value um and then i don't i don't like i want to read too much into it because i'd have to like go back and like double up on like reading and everything like to get my concepts (laughs) right but like uh, just read yeah yeah i'd need to like i try to read it every now and then get a little bit through and i go fuck this Um, it's a big (laughs) yeah it's a big commitment Uh, but that equivalence relation thing is like important because it feeds into like well You know, if if a capitalist is selling something for $20, but he only paid labor and cost production stuff for $10, then like, and there's the equivalence relationships between all the inputs, then the extra price that he's charging is like value added that he's scraping off the top and taking away from the workers or whatever. So there's this idea of equivalence relations. And um, yeah, I I think that's probably the other major important point that I think is is to highlight that idea.
0: Hmm. I should also say it within all this. At least I'm not sure if Fisher subscribed to this or not. Um, because he yeah. because this is a book intended for the for the public, mm. and it was it was meant to be short. It was meant to be very very accessible. It makes a lot of sense why he chose to maybe not spend the first half of the book just nailing down his definitions of things. I think that was, that was the right choice. Yeah, but given his. But, in terms of, like, the labor theory of value, I was just going to say Marx felt that the the true value of things sold comes from the labor expended to to make them. So other things like, say, capital expenditure on machinery doesn't come into it. Like, that's not a necessarily yeah. valid. Or more specifically,
1: thing. it's it's just a recursive argument. So it's like, yeah, but where did the, yeah, where yeah, did that yeah. like factor of production get its value from? Well it had to be made by somebody or something. So it's like you just, just yeah, recursively yeah. go backwards far enough into the production chain, eventually you'll get to like basically land and labor. And obviously yeah. in order to get anything productive out of land, you have to like apply labor to it to transform the mm. resource. So at the end mm. of the day it just comes down to labor. Yeah. And that's I'll
0: put an asterisk there as to I'm not sure if that's what Fisher believed or not. Yeah, because he it does it do, it's not made clear in this book. Whereas other things like the Marxist definition of capital, for example, while Fisher doesn't explicitly say this is what I think capital is, it the book makes a lot of sense when read with that definition of capital. But
1: also, given to be fair, given his influences like Zizek, Deleuze, and stuff, they're kind of post-Marxian like philosophers. You know, even I think like Zajek is generally described as a neo-Marx neo-Marxian or something like that, you know. So it's if that's not exactly his his understanding of capitalism, I think I'm okay just assuming that it is roughly his maybe he has a more pervasive idea of I think he has a more sorry, a more pervasive idea of capitalism around like its its cultural stuff and whatever. But those are some of the basic things that we can work with. And if we're mm. wrong, if we go and read some more Mark Fisher in the future and refine find a definition that he's actually thinking something slightly different than whatever. <laughs>
0: we'll do an episode yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah, cool. I will retract nothing. I've learned enough from the Tate Bible to know that I should never, never ever, ever apologize. apologize. Yeah. You never retract anything. Yeah, well,
1: I guess if you want to be the leader of the free world or the most famous person on the internet, you... Yeah, that's a good strategy. Like <laughs> Tate. Yeah, like Andrew Tate. Yeah, that's, that is exactly <laughs> yeah.
0: That is what I'm maximizing for. That's what I'm optimizing for by talking about
1: Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism <laughs> Obscure Podcast. Yeah, so I guess let, let's not spend too long on it, but mm. um, at least... How would you define capitalism? Yeah, can I ask you the same question? It's almost as if we uh, mm. structured this podcast. <laughs> it's
0: almost <laughs> as, <laughs> as if we've got the same episode structure written out for both of
1: us uh, in the same notion. Yeah, interestingly enough, I think, you know, a lot of those things in the Marxist, um, like what we just described, I don't necessarily, like, there's stuff around the equivalence relations, which I think they got wrong, um, that I don't think there's an objective value to anything. So I've already described, like, the Austrian view on previous episodes. Um, But roughly speaking, like, there's no objective value to it. Like, valuation is is a process that's performed by the people engaging in the exchange. It's subjective. and both of them get what they want more than what they're giving up. <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's like not, it's no yeah. big deal.
0: It's, it's actually. Which really interestingly <laughs> at the end of this book in the Marxist super nanny yeah, yeah. section, Fisher does talk about that in a really interesting Very way. Very briefly, but he describes. Yeah. He, he alludes. He doesn't
1: really it. address uh, the Austrian perspective. He addresses like the kind of classical mm. and neoclassical an economist, um, which is fine, you know? Uh, but I, yeah, I think the Austrians like figured it out. So anyway, it's like, uh, yeah. So, you know, like a lot of the things are interesting. So I guess like capitalism, I think at least is fundamentally based on the idea of private property. Uh, and then to the degree that you have violent, like, uh, uh, Hans Hopper, the, uh, uh, Austrian, uh, the famous lover of democracy. Yeah, the lover of democracy. He, he had a very succinct definition of it. He's like, uh, yeah. So like socialism is the institutional violation, um, or violence against, uh, private property and capitalism is not that, or at least the ins- institutional protection, or at least not the institutional, um, aggression against it. And, uh sort of from this idea of like uh, a private property you know some people might choose to use their private property as consumption like to to consume so just as uh you know but my the example that i like is just like a uh like a banana if you consume the banana directly it's just you know something that you're using for consumption but you could use it as a higher order production good in creating like a you know banana bread. <laughs> and it's very simple. You can see that like you haven't consumed the banana directly, you've used it to create another product. and in in doing that, you've 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 changed whether it's a consumption good or or a production good. And basically, the larger the more complex and the longer the um, process of production is, the more complex like your production goods become. And capital, in particular like in particular in a modern sense because we've got money as a unit of account we've abstracted we're able to abstract away like the details of like well this this we've got this factory but you can also like do things like well what's the land value of the factory what's its uh, approximate market value like apply things like amortization and stuff and so a capitalist society is one that is focused on or facilitates the accumulation of capital, which is essentially like the deepening and increasing complexity of the production chain to increase productive output. Um, But the kind of the core thing, the core thing that you need for that to work is um, private ownership in general, and then obviously private ownership of the means of production. And yeah, I I think... Yeah, that's what about you? That's, that's probably enough for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you think about this much more than I do, and your definitions will be much more well thought out. Fairly basically, my idea of capitalism is the system in which there is private property, but a particular definition of private property. So, not a private property that, for example, someone can use for their own consumption, but they're not allowed to exchange, yeah. for example, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. regard as capitalism. It's the exchange. The ability to exchange private property freely or semi freely, like there are always going to be restrictions. Yeah, yeah, and, and so the almost always there are going to be social mores, like I don't know, selling yeah. three year olds kidneys uh, on the black market or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> regressive taxation. I'm not allowed to sell 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 my <laughs> kidneys on the black market. Yeah, so I guess in I, we discussed this the other week in person, like uh, except yeah, a bit. We were also. Heavily, heavily intoxicated. Uh, yes. yes <laughs> <Jack>. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, like my, at least as I explained before, but in my opinion, like what I described this, like the institutional uh, protection of private property uh, actually subsumes that because private property implies that you have the right to also ex- like do what you want with your private property, including exchange. Like that's one of the things that you can do. Um, but yeah, mm. exchange is extremely important. But that's a,
0: it's a really interesting thing to specify yeah. though when you're defining private yeah, yeah. property because right. not everyone is going to say being able to exchange it means it's private property. I suppose someone could say like, oh, if you have a piece of land, you're not allowed to sell it, but you can live on yeah, it. Yeah, like that's, you do what you yeah, want that's a good point. Yeah, land. so, it, it,
1: it's, so it's, it's an important enough part of a capitalist society yeah. that it's, it's good to pull out. You want to
0: emphasize that you can, you can sell your stuff. if
1: Yeah, you and then you can accumulate it. You can create a profit if you can like, you know, like sell the thing for more than... The money that you put in and all that sort of stuff. And, like, roughly speaking, an important point just before we move on to the other stuff that, for me, that like kind of really made it click um, for me when I was reading von Mises. I think it's von Mises. He was explaining, he's like, okay, so what an entrepreneur does is like, they'll look at the factors of production that are available, whether it's labor or, you know, like factories or machines, or whatever, on the market. They're going to like buy those get some investment or whatever, um, buy those and then get their, like whatever else they need to like create the end product, build the thing over a course of time, over some time, like a year. And then at the end of that production process, they're going to sell the output. (laughs) And if, if the entrepreneur and the managers and the investors have invested in a project where at the end of doing that, they're selling, they're selling things for less than what they actually bought them for. And they're making a loss. What they've essentially done is they've created a very sophisticated way of destroying society's resources because <laughs> you, like you bought stuff off the market for a price of say like total cost of like the factors of production, everything and all that like hundred dollars. And at the end you're only able to sell it for $90 what you've just done is you've created a process where you've taken things off the market and then you're not able to sell it back for the market, but back to the market for at least as much as it costs you. So you've destroyed, you've, it's actually a destructive thing to run a non-profitable business. Um, and obviously like it depends on the timeline. You can, you know, if it's 10 years, you run for a loss five years and then you make it all back over the long run. But like, if you just run a, a business at a loss, just indefinitely, you're actually just like, you're, you're taking like, goods off the market and like making them less valuable as indicated by the fact that you can't sell them back to society, like your transformed end pro- products back to society at a price that like covers the the, the input costs. And to me, it's like, Oh, right. Okay. That's actually like pretty straightforward. Then <laughs> it's very abstract, but we need to deal with this abstraction because we have like mm-hmm. such a complex production system, you know, like the production system of 6 billion people or whatever that are connected now through the internet. And like global production chains and all this like just the millions and millions of different products and stuff that you can have like the only way to deal with that sort of complexity is through an abstraction um in this case like the abstraction is is money as a unit of unit of account so yeah that's sort of like that's one of the things that made the penny drop for me at least uh which Mm -hmm. i think like I've never seen a, a Marxist or anti-capitalist person like engage with that idea of like, well, if we just run an organization at a loss, like what we're essentially doing is like destroying resources. <laughs> it's, it's not as direct as just like buying some stuff and setting it on fire, but it is, it's like, it kind of is <laughs> in a more abstract way.
0: Mm, mm. So it's, I know we've taken a while to go over definitions and things like that, but it will make, or I hope it will make, the rest of this episode much clearer as to where Levi and I are coming from and our understanding of of some of the terms that Fisher uses but doesn't explicitly define in this book, especially when talking about things like capitalism because it's such a a politically loaded term. And when you listen to any debate on capitalism, you're probably going to hear, if there are two people debating, you're going to hear three definitions of capitalism. Mm, mm, mm. It's good if we can just yeah define what we're talking about and what we think that Fisher is talking about and why we think
1: Fisher might be using these terms. So Jack, one caveat there is that I've noticed with people who are into like structuralism, post-structuralism, that sort of stuff, when they talk about capitalism, they mean that, but that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think Fisher does this as well. There's almost like this other aspect to it, which is like this kind of political cultural thing, which I think we can discuss more like throughout the episode. Yeah. Cuz I I but don't it think more, it's an unreasonable. So Fisher it becomes more than just this economic thing that we're talking about. Yeah, it becomes yeah, like yeah. a social which structure. I don't
0: I don't think is an unreasonable assumption yeah. to make yeah, yeah. that the the system of production in a society is going to influence the culture. And similarly mm-hmm. like I think it's I think it, it's it's a feedback loop. The t- the two things influence each other because yeah. also the culture of a society is going to really influence the economically yeah, so suppose you have a culture which say say islamic societies where usury is very explicitly banned some islamic banks like get around it by doing like loans which don't technically have interest but the interest is it's it's in there yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know, like the, there's a difference in the amount of money, say that you you borrow and the amount that you pay back, but it's it's not interest because somehow, that's, that's <laughs> <horrible>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, somehow it definitely shapes social like, relations yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, put it, putting aside like kind of technical solutions to holding problems.
1: <laughs> yeah. like, you, you know, know ironically, like, that's like a very like uh, like. Uh, um, it's lit- such a capitalist lit- way of getting around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Liturgic way of getting right. Is liturgic the right way to say it I don't, Maybe it's the wrong word. Anyways. Oh, but it's not gonna be liturgical in Israel. Yeah, but- yeah, sorry, I may have been thinking of the wrong word. Anyways, so the other definition then i so that with that caveat out of the way, like the social relations mm-hmm. and stuff, the cultural aspects of it. Uh what uh there was a, one other definition I wanted to chat about that I think is important, that I always get confused when people drop this word. Do you know what word I'm gonna say, Jack? The most confusing word that comes out of these bloody people, neoliberalism. I have a suspicion that <laughs> <laughs> it's neoliberalism. What the hell do these people yeah, mean yes, by neoliberalism? Yes. Let's just like put that one down there as well because that one comes out a lot. How about we talk about how we? I see don't even because- fucking know, man. Like this just gets like thrown around like- so
0: much, man. I always got to double check. <laughs> so you got you have to distinguish between the the f- neoliberalism as a. As a signifier for the signified of boogeyman, it's a—it's just—it's a thing I don't like that is responsible for the aspects of modernity that I don't like. So if you've got a like, I don't know, Catholic integralist or something talking about neoliberalism, they mean it's the the antinomian, you know, anti-clerical impulse that leads to teenage girls twerking on the internet or something like that. So one of the things they disapprove of, or people not taking the sabbath seriously the the desacralizing impulse of the modern world whereas if you ask a marxist what neoliberalism is perhaps more unreflective ones will describe it as you know it's the the late stage of capitalism it's the final stage of capitalism where everything is melted into the market so there are there's neoliberalism as as epithet just something i don't like yeah that's good as epithet. yeah that's a that's a good one yeah for sure. when i think of neoliberalism describing more what i okay and then like okay, besides it as a a term of opprobrium then there are probably two components there's the philosophical component or at least what the the stated aim of neoliberalism is and then how it exists in practice and what i think of when i think of neoliberalism so I guess there's the philosophical idea of we are returning to classical economic liberalism in that there will be less government interference. The government will be sort of the night watchman government where it provides security, It is it has a monopoly on violence, both within its borders and preventing external violent threats. But besides that, it is going to let the market run. That. Uh, Again, this is this is more an epithet rather than than something considered, but people who talk about free market fundamentalists, it it might be it's something more in that sense. There's also the emphasis on globalization, free trade. Mm. I think there are a lot of progressive assumptions. So while it's not explicitly stated by people espousing neoliberalism, I think oftentimes there is the tacit assumption that history has a direction it's in the direction of basically the liberal anglosphere and mm. the the entire earth is magically going to look more and more and more like say new york or certain mm. parts of california yeah
1: yeah of course yeah of course the
0: bay area yeah yeah and then yeah yeah Hopefully yeah, yeah. and then there's there's the neoliberalism in practice and this is what i think of when i think of neoliberalism and what i intend when i describe something as neoliberalism so it's a Soft authoritarian form of government, which takes certain Western values and then universalizes them through means such as free trade, pressuring other countries to open up their markets to to Western goods, and a model of, I guess, PR free market but one that is highly regulated by an ever-expanding government which runs ever-larger budget deficits in order largely to fund social programs and one that does so, or one that regulates the market largely through a centralist bureaucracy. And I was quite happy when Mark Fisher started talking about market Stalinism, which we'll go into more detail on, because to my mind, market Stalinism is... One of the most important aspects of what I think of as neoliberalism, or at least neoliberalism in practice, because there is a big distinction to be drawn between, say, the rhetorical position of if we if we're talking about capitalist realism, then New Labour in the United Kingdom. So their stated position of wanting really small governments, wanting things run like businesses, quote unquote, uh, a, a a practice that. Fisher describes as market ontology, business business ontology. Yeah, business ontology. I really like that. that Was one of my favorite concepts, actually. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, and then there's the practice of actually just expanding government, making it more invasive, deepening surveillance, making subjects internalize surveillance through the use of of external (laughs) auditing and internal auditing, and then self auditing to create this bizarre at the same time, minimally invasive totalitarianism and internalised totalizing state. How do you view neoliberalism? Because it's such a slippery term. Yeah, it is a slippery term. I don't know. It blows
1: into a feeling yeah, quite often. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll try my best. So, okay. Caveat. Probably going to be wrong about this, so I just took like some quotes off the internet. So the first one is from mm. the opening paragraph to Stanford Plato's like like article on neoliberalism. It says that neoliberalism is generally thought to label the philosophical view that a society's political and economic institutions should be robustly liberal and capitalist, but supplemented by constitutionally limited democracy and a modest welfare state. I think it's very loaded. Like, there's a lot to unpack there. But yeah, sure. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot there. there. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of understated. Uh, and then there's uh, Naomi Klein, who's we well, should probably read one of her books. Like, She's probably read. Yeah, yeah. Her. Um, I read one of her books a while ago. I think. Uh, did she write this? Is not a, no, 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 no. That was XR. I oh, know she wrote something on like uh, environmentalism or something. If I can remember correctly, uh, but I might be misremembering. Um, so this is pulled from Wikipedia so whatever uh Naomi klein states that the three policy pillars of neoliberalism are one privatization of the public sphere two deregulation of the corporate se- sector and three the lowering of income and corporate taxes paid for with cuts to public spending um, then when I speak to when I speak to my friends who uh, tend to be from Melbourne or if not Melbourne, or Sydney, like the sort of educated, the like, north, ed, yeah, like northern, Mel- north Melbourne, like north of the river, yeah, like uh, educated professional class uh, that Jack and I have spoken so fondly of before. <laughs> um, uh, it it just seems to be used as just this like catchall term for just like things that the person doesn't like. In much the same way that they use capitalism, so to me it seems very vague. I actually asked one of my friends who like did his masters in like structuralist theory or whatever, like what does neoliberalism mean? Because I was like, I'm confused. What are you talking about? And he's like, it's just like everything, man. It's like the culture. It's like what like like fish don't realize that they're breathing water. It's like you don't realize that you're breathing this culture. It's like everything around us. So sort of. I was like, that's not really helpful. Which begs uh, the question, how do yeah, you know yeah, yeah, it' not helpful at all, so like I've noticed that there's a few words that get used like this: um colonization gets used like this, uh, mm. capitalism gets used like this, and neoliberalism gets used like this. so my at least working definition as a basic start is that even though it has this like ostensibly things like values of um, individual rights, equality before the law, like liberal, like classical liberalism, individual sovereignty uh like uh government and governance based on consent and democracy uh you know laissez-faire capitalism and and free trade and commerce uh but uh to my mind it also pulls in like a lot of this stuff around like actually the state is a lot bigger in and and like there's like this element of like surveillance and uh and in particular i think one of the key characteristics that seems to stand out for me is like this uh like corporatism like these large-scale corporates mm, often mm. multinationals that um are either in bed with governments or like lobbying governments and that sort of stuff and so you know like free trade for small businesses like you know solo entrepreneurs or whatever or like you know employees in small businesses looks a, a lot different qualitatively to like an enormous yeah. multinational corporation and so i think like to me corporatism is also corporatism and cronyism seems to be like a, a key that's a really good point well. because that
0: so, this and this is also ties to something in, in capitalist realism that I, I think is describing something very real how you have certain organizations that are notionally
1: private but have effectively become quasi government organizations, yeah.
0: such as big auditing firms. So, one of
1: my friends, the same friend I was talking about, like uh, he, he mentioned, uh, I was like, you know, like this company, big company, is not a part of the state like they're getting. And he was like, well, it depends what your definition of the state is, doesn't it? Like, because if they're so intertwined with the government like just because they're not a part of the same institution um, like legally, like when they're so Mm, intertwined, mm. doesn't that organization effectively become like state or like parastate or something? Uh, Mm. Good point. That's interesting. Which is no reason interesting point. So, uh, and the only, maybe the only other thing to say about is like, yeah, the, the state can be like weirdly interventionist and in particular around like the free trade stuff, like free trade, agreements between countries are like is anything about free trade. There's like the most, it's like yeah. one of those very Orwellian uses of language. Um, and it's a yeah. re- regulated and, free and trade. The classic, yeah, and the, the classic like examples of neoliberal um, people like Reagan, Thatcher, uh, probably like John Howard in Australia. And it seems though the people that I talk to don't like these, these things that they do is like anytime they, Privatize like a public asset. So, like you know, like if Australia mm. were to like sell off OzPost, turn it into a private company, or like what we did with—I think we did that. John yeah. Howard. I think we did that with Telstra, making- didn't we? Like, like Telstra. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was a neoliberal thing to do, mm. rather than keep that as a public asset on on the government's like books. Yeah. So I think that's enough. Do you think that's enough definitions and discussion preamble? I guess enough. For I've, a I've while. Just,
0: I think it's good that we like, we even got to neoliberalism. Yeah. I suppose in both of our very, very discursive answers as to to the question what is neoliberalism, it demonstrates that it is such a slippery term that Yeah. It's more it's more often describing a feeling rather than a a defined philosophical
1: stance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So with that being said, uh I would like to ask you how about we, a bit yeah, so let's maybe, how about we talk about what, we've got this key, <laughs> this key question. Uh, in. What is yeah, sorry. Well uh, maybe it was No, not sorry. Like we maybe, maybe it was worth it. it like, like hopefully it was worth it. Um, hopefully people listen to it. Maybe listening. we need to put chapters in so people can skip if they need to. Shout out to yeah. you. You yeah, listener. Yeah, if you're thanks. still listening. Big um, shout out. What is so I'm going to go and um Have a thirty second break, but I'm going to ask you a question so we can keep on talking. What problem is Mark Fisher trying to solve? Like, what's his problem situation? What is capitalist realism?
0: Mm. First of all, shout out, shout out to to Isaac Bell Holmstrom. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Wrote me a very very nice message about how he liked how he liked reading Tower. Shout out. Um, So, what is capitalist realism? What's Fisher trying to solve. So, it'll probably, I'll probably answer what capitalist realism is first, because Fisher is ultimately trying to work out how to exit from this state. So, in Fisher's telling, what capitalist realism is, it's it's fundamentally the sense that there is no alternative to capitalism, and particularly no alternative to the capitalism of when he wrote two thousand and nine. But I think. Many of the tendencies of the the liberal democratic capitalist world in 2009 have only deepened. So I I think it's, it's still relevant in 2024. So he says the only way to exit from capitalism is by demonstrating the unreality of capitalist realisms. Capitalist realism is this sense of no exit that surrounds and protects capitalism and prevents it from being replaced by anything because... If you are within capitalist realism, anything outside of capitalism seems unrealistic. It can't possibly work. It's it's simply against the order of things. You're you're working against nature. So Fisher's project with this book, and outside of this book as well, more broadly, was working out ways to to break that illusion of capitalist realism. Because once, in his view, you can even crack that, that veneer of capitalist realism even slightly, then capitalist realism loses its power. Once it has been demonstrated that it's not totalizing. it's not, it's not in some way the will of the universe that, that capitalism exists in the way that it does, that is when an exit from capitalism can be found. The difficulty is, as, as we'll get into, under capitalist realism, and it's in, it is really fun seeing how he, how he does share some, some ideas with Nick Land, although he, he does diverge from Nick Land, and he, he addresses Nick Land actually in this, which is really interesting. A, a significant feature of capitalism and of capitalist realism is that they commodify almost anything or at least so far any attempt to exit any attempt at rebellion is immediately commodified and turned into a, a an aesthetic that can be bought and sold and marketed and so even even ostensibly anti-capitalist projects so anti-capitalist films books music public statements are immediately folded back into commodities to be sold in a capitalist system. So he was searching for an exit from this. And he doesn't he doesn't offer concrete ways to exit. But he does there are particularly three areas that he says could be fruitful for working out exit from capitalism that that were ecological catastrophe, mental illness, and and the Excessive and deepening bureaucracy of neoliberal, or he calls it late capitalist society. I don't really like the term late capitalist because it, it assumes that we know where we are within the capitalist lifespan, which I think is highly presumptuous. It's also, we seem to have been in late capitalism for a long time, and if there is a phase of capitalism after this one, it, uh, it becomes linguistically difficult. You have late capitalism, later capitalism, post late capitalism, perhaps latest
1: capitalism, right before late capitalism. Sure. <laughs> early morning capitalism. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So did you, did, like at a high level, did you find this concept? Because he, he gets, I think he, he like explains it like up front, like pretty early on, right? So did you find it yeah. Did you find it an interesting, like what, what were your thoughts at a, at a high level about this idea of capitalist realism?
0: Really interesting. And I'm still thinking about it quite a lot now. And I, I will continue to do so. Because it's such a challenging idea because I definitely have the sense of there, there are alternatives to how capitalism is currently instantiated. Do I think that Australia on Sunday the 11th of February 2024 is the, the ideal political, economic and social system that cannot possibly be improved and is... yes such yes, a stable phenomenon that it can't be dislodged. <laughs> Absolutely, I do. End of episode. <laughs> See you next week. So so while I think that, of course, individual or particular instantiations of capitalism, if you take it as a... I'll, I'll, I'll use capitalism in more of Fisher's sense as not just being an economic system, but also defining the political system, it's influencing the culture, which, even if it's... I think it's actually quite reasonable because I do think how you interact with people economically is going to really deeply affect the culture. So I'll just state that. It's, I, I mean in that very expansive sense. Individual instantiations will come and go. And if, like, we, we've seen it in our, if not in our lifetimes, then in our parents' lifetimes at least. Like the capitalism of 1950 is very different from that of 2024. And you know, the capitalism, capitalism's say, that Adam Smith was writing about is, is so different from how it's currently carried out. So there, we've, we've, we are aware of evolutions within that sphere, and I'm sure there will be more of them. But what Fisher's talking about, and what I find more interesting, is this idea of a sense of no alternative to, to a capitalism of, of private property and being able to exchange commodities and an accumulation of capital. Yeah. And the profit motive. Yeah. And this comes back to my ongoing interest in the idea of technique. And and interest in Nick Land. So my my knowledge of Nick Land is still poor, but I'm working through Thirster Annihilation, which is fascinating and difficult. But this sense that you you have a system that whenever it is opposed just commodifies that opposition and sells it back into the system this idea that capitalism is it's a system that i guess takes into account energy in the sense of there are certain things that are highly inefficient certain things that are more efficient and over time the things that are more efficient will outcompete those that are less efficient energetically there is a real sense that at least to my mind, that's very hard to compete with using systems that are more, I guess, command systems. So people working out what an economy should produce and then and then trying to make that happen, given that an individual has such, or a, a group of 10 people or 100 people, has such a limited amount of information to, with which to make decisions about for a system that, It feels like that can't possibly outcompete a a free market capitalist system. So this idea of there not being an alternative, or it being so hard to think of alternatives, is definitely something that resonated with me when Mark Fisher brought it up. Now I I'll I'll add this: I'll preface everything I will say with this now, so I don't have to keep saying it. This could well be because I grew up under capitalist realism. This this process was in place. When I was born, it has been pla- in place through my entire life. I have not known anything but capitalist realism. So I suppose F- Fisher would say, well, you feel like there is no alternative because th- that is capitalist realism. That is what I'm describing. And so that's what I've, one of the things I find really fascinating about this book, that I, I read it and think, yeah, but it, there isn't an alternative, but that is the problem he is describing which is really fascinating. How did you feel when it was this idea of capitalist realism was pointed out and then elucid- uh, expanded upon during, during this book?
1: Uh, I thought it was like a, like a very fascinating idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I just
0: see it so much in myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: for sure. I think it's good that he pointed it out and as somebody who's interested in mm. technology and entrepreneurship and, and economics and that sort of stuff, um, I guess it's good for me to have that have that checked, I suppose. And now I've got a, a mm. useful word that I can now use as a shorthand to think through that. Uh, yeah, so I guess I, I'm thinking out loud a little bit here, but if I could sort of just... Uh, <laughs> I, I never do that. I never do that on this. I guess particular. I would distinguish between... And I think probably Mark Fisher would disagree with what I'm about to say, but... Um, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit, but this about, isn't his about, podcast yeah, about it. Is it? But uh, I, I think they're they're related; they influence one another. But there's two aspects to capitalism that I think are important to keep separate. Uh, that I will call one the ideological aspect, and two the engineering aspect, and I think they're really important to to like at least separate in your head there are concrete problems. It's not, it's not just like, this is not just like purely ideological. This is like, there are concrete problems about how do we use scarce resources in a society? How do we allocate those resources? How do we allocate them in a way that is efficient? How do we allocate them in a way that... Um, communicates the relative scarcity of them to one another, given that the combinatorial space of millions of products and stuff is just so enormous that we couldn't possibly do it in like an actual like lookup table or whatever. Uh, and they, these are very concrete, um, economic problems. They're not, they're not just ideological. They're not, it's not reducible to ideology. And could I just yeah. jump in? So when you
0: talk about millions of products too, I'm assuming you don't mean, you know, we want millions of different brands of peanut butter, for example. No. Like that's not no. the, the millions of products necessarily because you could say, oh, well, in a command economy, you would only have one type. It's more to make like one yeah. thing. There is so much above that in the production chain that requires coordination. Is that what you mean when you talk about... Yeah, there's a really
1: fascinating article or paper called uh, pencil which talks about this it's amazing it's like the guy actually the guy who wrote the paper actually just tried to explore how complex is the production process for producing something that we consider simple something as simple as uh lead or a graphite pencil and actually when you look at the like it's what it's painted with the wood like how the graphite is made how it gets across the world um all the management that's required, all the contracts and the supplies and stuff. It's actually really complicated. And you made this interesting point that nobody, no one person actually knows how to make a pencil. And that's a very simple product. Um, uh, it's actually like to bring it, to bring a Faber-Castell pencil to your like local post office or wherever you buy your stationery from, <laughs> um, like is, is an incredibly complex process, let alone something like an mm-hmm. iPhone or, or a car. Um, and yeah, so there's that there's that key resource issue which is a really important issue and societies that got it wrong last mm. century like millions and millions and millions of people died from starvation because they didn't get that they they didn't they they got it wrong and not te- not millions but like tens of millions tens of millions of people died and uh and that's a really important that's not ideological and anybody who wants to say that's an ideological problem like I think they're just they're just uh they're being reductive and this is actually an issue of like, how do we get scarce resources used properly and minimize the amount of waste? And then the other part of the engineering problem, or maybe, maybe actually there's three parts to it. There's the engineering problem, there's the epistemic problem, and there's the ideological problem. And the epistemic problem is as Hayek wrote, who like these people hate Hayek, the neoliberal philosopher, uh, but he made this like point about like one of the key issues in economics is um, he wrote this essay called knowledge and society or something like that. And he, he conceived of the core economic problem is how do we best make use of diffuse knowledge that is spread out over millions of people. And like when you try to do a command central economy thing, you're trying to make all these decisions with essentially no not like proportionally like vanishingly small proportion of the knowledge in the society. Whereas like in a market economy, you've got people from carpenters and mechanics to software engineers and doctors, like with their local specific knowledge that they're making use of. And so that's the epistemic aspect to it. And then there's the ideological aspect to it, which is like all the stuff around, well, you know, the atomization of the individual and healthcare and these sorts of things that are important issues to talk about. And, um, And like corporatism and lobbying and should we have this business ontology where we treat everything in society like a business? Those are all really important questions, except to me, reading this book and reading about capitalist realism, it's good to like have that counterpoint idea to make me distinguish between, okay, when am I thinking through like the engineering parts of it or the epistemic parts of it versus like, is this more of an ideological thing? And to what degree does ideological shape the other two or do the other two constrain and shape the ideology?
0: Mm, yeah, and not, none of these things exist no. in a vacuum. They're all influencing
1: yeah. each other continuously. Um, and so, yeah, useful concept, interesting, thought-provoking. I don't think that, be, and I think it's basically because he's surrounded by other academics and hasn't really engaged with like, with like much economics in the book, he only references two economists in a book about capitalism. Uh, like, you know, it's like there's, these are actually, like, really pretty substantive issues. <laughs> and they're, not, like, they're not peripheral. Mm. Yeah.
0: Mm, mm And I guess that's... So if I'm being Fisherbot, maybe you could say it's the... So the, the very idea that the The realistic or the the necessary thing to do to engineer society or to have and the engineering solution to coordinate diffuse knowledge, to use finite resources which have multiple uses effectively, the idea that that has to be or is is best coordinated with a free market is itself a component of capitalist realism, and there are other solutions i wonder if so he didn't go into command economies and things like that he did talk about the need to rediscover the general will for example which i find very threatening
1: of course but because that, that you need might you need somebody to interpret the general yeah. will and it's it's almost inevitably yeah, yeah. academics so
0: <laughs> yeah he didn't explicitly no, say that it's he wants implied no no, no no it's not economy it's not implied. I just, yeah i guess so Part of the value of the concept of capitalist realism is it even makes you think, okay, well, you've got, is there something else other than market and command economies? Is there a way that we're not seeing yet that might be able to coordinate better than a, a command economy and might have less of the, what he would see as the, the
1: waste of a market economy? Yeah, and so I guess if I was to break down into my triad, like, is there an alternative to the, like, the engineering or the maybe engineering is not a good word, but the resource allocation problem is there a Mm. concrete alternative to the epistemic or knowledge utilization problem. Uh, like those are, as I said, substantive problems. And, uh, like, it's not like (laughs) there isn't, there hasn't been a, a, an alternative that's been put forth and that makes any sense and that works. And, uh, and it's a good question. Are there alternatives? But like, mm. if you are going to suggest that we should look for something different, like whatever the thing that you suggest is, also has to address. Though it can't just address the ideological stuff. It's got to address yes, yeah. the the resource allocation problem and the epistemic or the knowledge utilization problem. Those like that's just you know. Um, anyways, with that being said, you know the ideological stuff that um, Fisher talks about is super interesting because then you can always say like, well, yeah, Levi, even given that stuff, how does that influence like the way people relate to each other, the way we like think about being in a society, the way that it informs our politics that, you know, should it just be this kind of, um, as you said before, like totalizing hegemonic um, like overriding ideological thing that just in, in, infiltrates all of our social relations and so forth. Uh, good questions. All good questions. That fishes. Uh, has a lot of a lot of interesting ideas <laughs> that we are going to be talking about.
0: So what's the okay? So what's the first thing we'll talk about? So now we're going to go through the aspects and the key ideas of capitalist realism of this thing that Fish is describing. This sense that there is no alternative to capitalism, and meaning capitalism as a resource allocation system, as an ideology, as a method of relating to one each other to one another, things like that. One of the first things he talks about is the the impulse of capitalism to make things fungible, to to commodify things. And I can definitely see a lot of elements of this. I don't think this is frivolous. So he says that what does capitalism, quote-unquote, want? What does, what's this, what does this system of social relations optimise for? Within the, I guess, almost the, the system of constraints, which things within capitalism outperform other things. So he says things that get bought and sold more easily outcompete things in capitalism that don't. As such, things tend to get commodified, so made into things that can be exchanged for other things rather than necessarily consumed in themselves. And Fisher says that this leads to a a flattening of things, of things being made more and more fungible and easily exchanged, more standardised, because that that makes them easier to buy and sell. He brings this up with respect to cultural artefacts, for example and the increasing desacralization of things so for example if something is sacred or religious or considered unique that's something that's bought and sold with much more difficulty because you're bringing in these non-capitalist dimensions to it you're bringing in say spiritual dimensions that impede the the free exchange of goods which he doesn't say this explicitly but i think it follows fairly naturally, that that could explain a large part of the loss of religiosity in the West and increasingly in in many non-Western countries as well, that religion resists things being made fungible and being made into commodities. Additionally, he talks about how deeply standardized actually a lot of our, our culture is, how it's a it's a very very dominant marketable thing or marketing tactic to talk about the the use of or the attractiveness of individuality and personal expression and then he he looks into okay how do people express themselves how do they express this individuality well it's actually by consuming or buying and then advertising the consumption of a number of mass produced products so our individuality is actually itself just a collection of fungible goods to be consumed in a public way, in an outward-facing way. And I thought this discussion was really, really interesting, because I think there are many aspects of our culture at the moment which are far more standardised than any other time in history I can think of, and far more resistant to being qualitatively unique and hard to hard to sell in some way and increasingly fungible is this so referring back to your your triad of the the aspects of capitalism I think you probably can draw a line actually from the the engineering aspect of it to the these cultural effects I think a lot of these cultural effects could well be downstream of that that engineering aspect of okay how do you how do you coordinate a lot of people basically, and their use of resources. What did you think of the the fungibility, the unleashing of what Deleuze and Guttery called the, I think it's the unnameable thing of capitalism, latent in societies and constantly constrained by things like religion or familial loyalties, which has been, I mean, I'm taking this from Nick Land. Nick Land said that it was something to do with the introduction of the concept of zero into medieval and Renaissance Europe that that ripped off these safeguards and set in motion the cybernetic
1: de <laughs> of the world. Uh, Nick Land. All right, I'm looking forward to the next book of his that we read. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, it, it really is. It's obligatory. It is that we're gonna so, have to it's so good. Of his stuff our listeners really yeah, seem to love Nick Land. He's so cooked. <laughs> he's such a fucking man. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's funny. The it's brilliant combination of being...
1: I think a truly profound thinker and completely <laughs> unhinged. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I don't know what this unnameable thing is. Maybe I missed that part and I don't understand it. But with regards, yeah. Okay. Oh, I can I can go yeah, over. Yeah, that. Just Do you want me, you me, and me and to go over? What's the question? <laughs> I think it is first. So, so the,
0: my knowledge of Deleuze and Guttery's, I think they called it the unnameable thing. Let me just let me just double check to make sure. I am I am using the correct terminology. Yeah,
1: you wouldn't want to be inaccurate on this podcast, Jack. Unnameable thing, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be inaccurate <laughs> on this podcast. So I've I've read very little of these these
0: thinkers. My knowledge of this more comes from Nick Land. So <laughs> this, is, 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 this is this is Deleuze passed through Nick Land, passed through Jack. <laughs> <laughs> so they posited that capitalism it's this latent Potential that's that's present in all cultures and a latent potential. I think of it through the lens of of um, technique. So the this drive the drive for a effic- for efficiency and standardization through standardized behaviors. They say that it's this this latent potential in all cultures that's restrained by cultural forms to prevent its corrosive desacralization so if you unleash this unnameable thing within a culture it's going to start digesting everything around it making everything around it into a form which only promotes the the further advancement of of i guess efficiency in the sense of being able to Pursue outputs more efficiently. It, it makes outputs into processes and processes into outputs. It eliminates almost that, that distinction between the two things. And they say that when, when finally those, those safety rails are ripped off, you, you get capitalism spreading out through culture, dissolving everything, desacralizing everything and making a system no longer governed by any sort of transcendent law. Everything's governed according to a law of what is more efficiently going to produce more processes, which themselves can be made more efficient. Fisher, Fisher actually says that these deterritorializing impulses of capitalism have been largely confined to finance, and the re-territorializing forces presided over culture which is interesting. And that's why he says that finance has been driven more and more towards efficiency, whereas culture under what he calls late capitalism has stagnated. It's become extremely backwards looking. Interestingly, this is, is kind of more applicable today than it might have been in 2009. Anyone who's lost interest in films like me, or at least in, in popular films, because they just all seem to be Rehashes of Star Wars or Marvel movies or or remakes of Disney movies that were popular 30 years ago might, might feel similar. The, the cultural stagnation of re territorialization in the cultural field. Um,
1: but so we, we can talk yeah, about Yeah, so later. given that you've just explained, that's, that's my that. understanding like, of it. Could you re ask the question of me so I can try and, try and give you a reasonable response? Yeah, so you, ask, you asked me what was the, the unnamable thing. Wait, you asked open, what question. do I think of that idea about the fungibility of everything? And, and I was like, yeah, but oh, what yeah. is the unnamable thing?
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess the, it is a restrained drive to optimizing processes in society for the sake of optimizing processes in society, <laughs> which is restrained by cultural forms like familial obligations, obligations to a particular deity. And and certain restrictions on things like usury or finance,
1: yeah. That yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting. I guess, uh, hmm. like it's an. So I kind of see what they're talking about. This uh, at least mm. certain aspects of capitalism. Obviously, efficiency can be very important um, in you know production processes of machines like cars or whatever. There's this whole Lean Six Sigma thing that came out of Toyota about like reducing the error rate of things to you know one part in a million or whatever it mm. was the error rate that they were trying to get to uh, Six Sigma. What I think that's one in a million. Um, and there's there is that, and that does lead to things that are fungible. Um, and what's driving that is partially the economies of scale, where like as you pr- pr- produce more of something, the marginal cost of producing the next unit mm. of that thing drops and you can like amortize capital expenses over like the entire like productive output and that sort of stuff. So that's, that's definitely something in the world for sure. Uh, I guess to me at least there's not only that, that's not the only thing that's going on and that doesn't ever exist in a cultural vacuum and it always exists in like, um, like a culture a political context and those things do put constraints on on that and uh people you know like a a good example is like uh in places like australia we've had the labor movement uh throughout the 20th Hmm. century where you know now we've got you know you can like whatever maybe libertarians or something would have like some issues with some of the constraints whatever putting that that sort of thinking aside not that it's you know completely irrelevant but it's much better to be a worker now than it was a hundred years ago in terms of like your rights your ability to like take action against your employer your ability to um form associations depending on your industry like in unions and that sort of thing and yes there's always issues but um to me like just uh these like these people like fisher and Deleuze and stuff it it seems as though like they think uh this efficiency drive is totalizing and it's just like destroying everything it's like acid through the society and i just don't see it that way like i see plenty of like counterbalances and like um and also ways in which like uh entrepreneurial capitalism doesn't necessarily uh only optimize for efficiency it can be good but there's there's things like and he wasn't you know he wrote this book before the mon movement of like uh Im- influences and stuff online but the idea that you can go and do something like create a youtube channel about a very niche weird thing you know like hermetics the youtuber who does the stuff about gnosticism what is that his name hermetics Hermitics. Oh,
0: Hermitics. Like he he'll he interviews people who are writing books about weird stuff. Yeah. He's interviewed logistics.
1: Like, I'm pretty sure. You before. know, he's yeah. able, he he's able, able to make a living stuff. and do what he really enjoys. And it's an extremely obscure thing to do. And uh and that's enabled, it's not necessarily efficient in the in the sense of like these production lines and stuff, because some it's the capital like machine is not just about efficiency, although that can be important. It's it's actually about satisfying the wants and needs and preferences of consumers. And sometimes what consumers want is something that isn't necessarily efficient, such as like, uh, a, a, yeah. I think when you
0: when you talk about efficiency, it might be slightly differently okay. to how these people yeah. are meaning it. And also when you talk about, it's important to separate out, out Deleuze and Fisher on one hand and land on the other because Deleuze and Fisher both think that, there, you can't have absolute totalizing capitalism. So you need some sort of re re-territorializing yeah. impulse. You need some yeah. sort of some some sort of waste for capitalism to live. Whereas Nick Land seems to think that <laughs> yeah, it just capitalism dried. will just like it spits <laughs> out those things. It's just going to integrate everything. Yeah. yeah. So, in terms of the efficiency, so it's efficiency towards what? So talking about say the labor movement is interesting in the context yeah. of. And Fisher's got some opinions because on that, many good. many things have just been offshored. So it, yeah, it's like there is a labor movement in Australia, and because of that, a lot of companies have just moved operations to places where yeah. there isn't a labor movement. Yeah, so, which I suppose would be Fisher's response to that. That yes, there are there are impulses to constrain capitalism or this capitalist drive for for basically outputting things that consumers demand at a lower cost.
1: There are things impeding that in Australia, but then producers just go elsewhere. Yeah, sure. And uh, he's got some really interesting thoughts on labour and stuff, which we can get into. And I don't want to spend all my time I just just like criticising, like trying to explain and that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, one of the interesting things that he did point out that you mentioned sort of like in this sort of section is uh, the desacralisation or sacralization. Mm. Uh can I just clarify that that's referring to like, you know, um, commodifying the transcendent. Like the, the, removal the removal of, of the, the sacred. Stuff, yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. I I don't, uh, so pe- perhaps that is something that's happening. I don't know how related that is to capitalism technology. It seems like they're probably related. Um, yeah, I think the children are highly related. Uh, I guess to me, there, there's, it's also important to remember that there's, there's things outside the market uh, so like the exchange market, and those things matter as well and uh, if one of those things is like your religion, you know maybe you don't engage in like anything to do with market transactions with regards to your religion and yeah I, I don't necessarily see that as like um, in conflict uh, yeah, but is is the is the a sense of capital and the deepening of technological uh, production processes and stuff is that driving or like contributing to the desacralization of, of the world? Interesting question. I'm not sure <laughs> how, how, how much are they related. I'd say the two definitely
0: coincide quite strongly. And I think oftentimes they are working at odds to each other because there are a lot of, say, religious a lot of religious movements do do promote things that slow down capitalism. Mm, mm, mm. Say the bans on usury is one of the most obvious ones. But then things like don't work on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I guess the sovereign individual like made, that, this, made this point. In in a society yeah. that's driving where I'd, like religious worship doesn't happen in a vacuum yeah. and say in Australia it happens within the context of but of almost every decision you're making on some level it is touched by well i need money i need to spend money on things like how how is this working it's that that is the background to a lot of what we do and certain things that work against that or impair that are just a disadvantage and if someone believes in it strongly enough like they're going to continue to believe in it but over time i think it
1: it does corrode the the sacred, Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I guess to me, it par- partially what it's doing is, it's like uh, maybe they, they would say this is part of like the neoliberalism stuff is like a lot of this pattern in society that you're pointing at, that we're pointing out like the desacralization and that sort of thing uh, seems to be also coming from like putting a lot of responsibility for all these different things um, on the individual and I don't know, like who's putting the responsibility it's just like this kind of, I don't know, like the cultural milieu of individualism and, you know, like fish talks about this later in the book, which we might touch on is like mental health, individual thing. It's not considered in like mm. a community mm. context or anything like that. Uh, you know, so like it's, it's just like the individual versus the world or the individual versus the market. And, uh, it's on you to figure out how to how to do these things. Um, so yeah, i think it's super interesting. Like uh, it's something to definitely ponder on, i think for me at least. Yeah,
0: there's so much in this book that's really really interesting to think about and it it, it provides a a nice frame to consider the world through, which might be the most valuable part of mm-hmm. this book. Mm-hmm. Should we move on to
1: market ontology? Or bis- market, sorry, on- business ontology? Yeah. Yeah, business it's, ontology, yeah. I really love it. I, I like this. Do you want to explain what uh, business yeah, ontology yeah. is?
0: Yeah, it's really straightforward, and it is. it's something you do see a lot. So it's effectively when people talk about how everything should be run as a business, as a good thing, is basically what Fisher calls business ontology. And so Fisher says certain things like education or healthcare shouldn't be viewed through the lens of of business ontology because, say, in the case of education, so he uses education as a as an example through much of this book because he he worked in the British further education system for a number of years as a lecturer. He says, for students, for example, are students the, the consumers of the product of education if it is run as a business, or are they the output? And he uses that as a way of saying just saying a school or a higher education institution or a university should be run as a business is not as obvious as certain people make it out to be. That well, running it as a business is by by nature good. And he identifies a number of the problems with with education in the United Kingdom as stemming from this this Business ontology as stemming from a confusion as to what the what education should be because it hasn't been examined. It's just been stuffed into this, I guess, quasi business like arrangement. Is there any aspect of the the concept of business ontology that
1: I missed? No, I, no. I think that's that's good. You can see it being applied to everything from like churches to yeah, like higher education, Mm. that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it is interesting. I guess it it is, uh, to, to, to their point, this like totalizing effect of the ideology. It's like, Mm. okay, but should we really be treating education as, as business? And I guess if I could distinguish, I, you know, maybe I'm, uh, not Maybe I'm going too far out on the limb here, but like distinguishing between like, as I said before, the resource allocation problem of like running an education educational institution in institution where you do have a certain amount of money and you've got to do stuff with that money <laughs> and you mm. try to use that money to the best that you can. Uh versus like I guess what he'd mean by like business ontology is not just like the accounting of stuff, but actually like kind of the ideological approach that you're taking to the way that you operate and the, the culture of like the employment and the way that you treat the students and so forth. Mm. And yeah, implicitly like we saw that in uh at our at our university, I think. I think it's. How it felt, yeah, oh and yeah absolutely, yeah, it's it's kind of like this weird uh contradiction between like the university has these lofty ethical goals around like what do we stand for and all this sort of stuff and and it's mm. like, yeah, but you're also just like milking international students for all they're worth, and like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and even yeah. as a domestic student, quite often, I felt like I was viewed as just this bag of pot yeah and yeah, post yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, so. Yeah, I don't really have a like. I'm not. I don't really necessarily even disagree with him. I think it's just a, a really useful concept but to me.
0: It's a really useful concept, and it it does sound very obvious when you phrase it like that. It's yeah, maybe not everything should be run as a business because not everything is necessarily yeah, a business. and business. Because you 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 could just frame education as a public yeah. good. It's okay. We yeah, we just need yeah. to educate children. and. Yeah, I would say that this this book is. And yeah, I guess you can decompose that into Okay, well you need this thing to be a stable phenomenon through time. So it can't just be bleeding off energy, whether that's measured as money, for example. It can't it can't be too too costly to run, otherwise it's just, it's not going to function through time. I suppose it would be interesting to know whether I assume he probably would view it this way. Again, that resource allocation problem, I imagine he would actually also say is an aspect of capitalist realism, that even thinking in terms of how much money does this thing cost to run is itself within the framework of there not being an exit
1: or you not believing that there's an exit to capitalism. I suppose so. I mean, yeah, not going to, like, criticise too much. The small thing is just like... I have a... Yeah, but you do, like you do have to consider how much resources your thing is going to like, you we could just spend all of society's resources yeah. on educating people and we'd get nothing else done. Like yeah, or, to educate you know, like, one person. to that is just a, maybe it's capitalist realism or maybe it's just actually the case that you have to think about resource trade-offs, whether you want to use a monetary mm. unit of account or whatever, like it is something that you have to do. Uh, even if you want to try to like approach yeah. education is- without the profit motive and so forth.
0: Mm. And this is why the, the idea of, considering the idea the, the concept of capitalist realism is really interesting for me because when i think of that brute resource allocation problem that's where i really hit that well there's no alternative idea of well it you have to take this into account of course you do and so it's interesting trying to see how much of that is because i've been raised in a capitalist realist environment and how much of it is because no there actually just are resource constraints that you need to deal with because that's what i yeah I guess if to. we could
1: distinguish between like admitting or like accepting constraints of resource mm. allocation and so forth uh versus like centering like a business mind like making that like a central part of the way that you think about the the institution and mm. the way that you wanna run it and 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 so forth like you're which mm. I think mm. yeah, yeah, I think. Presumably, if he was still alive, yeah. like we, he he might agree with us. Like I think, to, I don't we'd know, have I, him I on the show. Really we'd be like... grilling him right now. Yeah. Anyways, um, yeah. Cool. Interesting. I I found this book basically full of like interesting. Um. Now I suppose words where I can that I can use to point mm. to certain things, even if like the overall narrative I yeah. disagree with. I think he's like picked up on some really interesting things, like business ontology. Uh, do you want to pick the next, the mm-hmm. next thing, mm-hmm. the next major to- thing that he talks about?
0: Yeah. So there's the the belief that we are past believing in, in meta narratives, he talks about a lot. So Mark Fisher had a lot of problems with postmodernism. I guess this is this is
1: again a term that we might need to Oh yeah, we miss that one <laughs> define,
0: even if the definition is not something that everyone agrees with. And it won't be because this is just such there's a term that's thrown around so much to the yeah, point where it's yeah, almost yeah. meaningless. But <laughs> I will say what I mean when I talk about postmodernism just so we're with we a bit of clarity. And so postmodernism to my mind is a reaction against against modernism. So modernism the, the the late 19th early 20th century idea of there are a few there are a few aspects to modernism. So it was this belief in human progress, that human progress is directed towards something, whether it is, I guess in the modernist context, it often related to technology, improving technology, improving mastery over the world. There was also this belief that there was some sort of external world that you could be measured against. And a, a lot of the project was finding things, finding ways to measure oneself against this, this external world and this shared experience postmodernism on the other hand as a reaction to that loses trust in what postmodernists or some of them would call meta narratives these overarching narratives of things like human progress or or technological advancement and the belief that there is any sort of objective neutral ground from which to view these things they they regard human experience as fragmented not only fragmented interpersonally so say my experience of the world is fundamentally different from yours and to a large extent we can't actually communicate over that gap there's not a neutral position from which we can mediate our two experiences but also within a person's experience so through time a person's experience might actually not be you you can't intermediate between someone's experience at two different points so that's very roughly what I think of when I think of postmodernism and I think it's largely concordant with what, with what Fisher means and particularly what Jameson means because Fisher will quote Jameson at length in this book when discussing postmodernism and how to Fisher's mind and to Jameson's mind postmodernism marches in lockstep with capitalism which I don't disagree with. <laughs> I think for, for its... I guess, aesthetic disavowals of capitalism. It's such a deeply subjectivist movement that it lends itself very, very nicely to the exchange theory of value, like remarkably well to the exchange theory of value. And it also promotes this, this naivety that, that Jameson talked about, which, which we can talk about. So this is a lengthy prelude to this aspect of capitalist realism that keeps us firmly ensconced within capitalist realism, the postmodernist belief that we are past metanarratives, that we now
1: are able to cease to believe in metanarratives. So, 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 uh, (laughs) I'm just going to go with what you described as uh, postmodernism because I don't, I, again, it's Mm. such a slippery term that, yeah, I'm, yeah.
0: It's such a slippery term. Most of the time you hear it now, it will be, I don't know, like Ben Shapiro or yeah. someone someone like that describing just anything to the left. Of yeah, so if neoliberal
1: is the boogeyman of the left, then postmodern is the boogeyman of the yeah. right. Postmodern, neo neo-Marxist. Marxists, <laughs> <laughs> woke <laughs> critical theorists. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah gender ideology <laughs> oh man like there's people like fighting over these these things it's, it's weird isn't it We live, live in a strange time anyways uh so what uh what 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 does he mean but by meta narratives maybe is being a dumb dumb here but
0: so a meta narrative yeah, elucidate meta narrative could be something like uh, there is, History has a direction, and it bends towards human mm. progress. Mm. so mm. that's that that could be a narrative. you It's something that you view you you can use to view everything through it's It's something that can contain a worldview. Mm. so you know, you would view all current events as tending towards increasing human progress, you know, human progress being effectively people
1: becoming more like liberal democratic Westerners. Yeah, so that would be like the, what's his name? Francis Fukuyama yeah. or whatever, about like the end of history sort of vibe of yeah, liberal, yeah. ordinary liberal-like. Uh, yeah, or during, during the Cold War, I
0: suppose you could say, yeah, there the, were the, these meta-narratives of, on, on one hand, in capitalist countries, of capitalism overcoming communism, of human, human freedom and free exchange overcoming communism. In communist countries, you know, there is definitely the Marxist meta-narrative of... You have these particular discrete stages of history which lead to one another, although that 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 has become more subtle in the days since Marx's fairly crude formulation of yeah. I guess the for me, it's I just, but but there there's still there still is a meta narrative within Marxism yeah. of the proletariat eventually overthrowing the bourgeoisie, of the contradictions within capitalism eventually becoming untenable, leading leading to the collapse of capitalism, eventually leading to. Through several stages of history, communism—that itself is a meta
1: narrative. So it's a
0: it's a and it's a
1: high level narrative that's supposed to contain more. or be a framework,
0: yeah, that contextualizes yeah, narratives like within more,
1: it. It's almost like a, a system of coordinates or yeah. of reference points. And so, like to a particular, narratives. say, communist country is uh, telling their like more local, idiosyncratic national narrative. Um. In the framework mm. of the larger communist or larger Marxist meta narrative, okay, meta narrative, okay. yeah, um, and so yeah, so in, on that note, I think that clarifies a little bit of what um, Fisher was talking about for me. Yeah, so he say he's saying that mm. in mm. under this quote unquote late stage capitalism and postmodern culture, we are we believe that we are past belief in meta-narratives. Wouldn't that itself be a na- meta-narrative? <clears throat> yeah. That is yeah. exactly what he says. And I think yeah. that is that is completely true. Cause
0: we like it's it's not that we've in some Nietzschean way just re-evaluated values. Like we, we still definitely have social mores and social morality. And it, like like you said, the belief that we no longer have meta narratives is itself a meta narrative. It is it is a a narrative structure used to contextualise other yeah. narratives that we tell, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Fisher says that it it reinforces capitalist realism by reinforcing this idea of of something being real or something being realistic. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he says people will look at meta narratives of the past and say, "Oh, that is it is completely unrealistic because we now." Now that we have transcended metanarratives, yeah, we've transcended metanarratives. We now see what's realistic, and what is realistic is, is, is the market. The yeah. market, okay, effectively, yeah. yeah, it is. It is capitalism, yeah. and he says this identification of capitalism with something being real. He he uses the, I think it's a Lacanian distinction between reality, which obscures the real, capital real, which can never be seen face on, but you can see fragments okay, so. of it. So uh, through the world, it might not. We might not need to really go into that Lacanian aspect of it here, because that's that's one of the less compelling parts of this book for me. But I think his idea of this postmodernist idea of transcending meta narratives in favor of us only seeing reality and reality happening to keep defaulting to basically capitalism is really interesting, and actually probably is a form. Of capitalism, basically just taking in, I guess, ostensible opposition to it, digesting it, and making it into a justification for itself. Yeah, it's like a way that you can saying. see it yeah. happening, and I think it, there, there's a lot yeah, of yeah. truth to
1: this. Well, I guess we claim. don't. Yeah. So, I, very interesting, interesting point. Again, like another useful thing to think about this, like idea of meta narratives and the capitalist realist meta narrative that we're beyond narratives. <laughs> um uh but i, yeah. guess, like, I, mean, I don't want to like go into it too much because it's a whole thing like the lacanian like real verse um reality but maybe we could just touch on it enough to like to like yeah sure. it's in the title of the book right so we probably need to talk about it a little bit <laughs> yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, i yeah. give it a crack and you can you can uh correct mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. <laughs> anybody in our audience, who happens to know more about Jacques Lacan and his thinking, please correct our 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 mm. ignorance on this one. My ignorance, or don't, or don't <laughs> just just agree with us publicly. Agree with so, us. Uh, he had this interesting idea of reality versus the real. And mm. Mm. okay, so. As far as I could understand, let's see if I get my notes down here. Is that the real is is more like an ideological framework? So it is the oh, I saw. I think Jack's going to correct me in a tick. (laughs) Yeah, so I think it's the other way around. Yeah, she he noted this author. I should have put the name down, but like and I think that influenced him. Said uh, the reality principle. uh, The ideology presents itself as empirical, as empirical fact. And the real is what any, quote, reality must suppress. What, what is what? Yes. And so you have this distinction between what is actually the case and then I suppose what is uh, the ideologically explained to be what is the case. So it's more like, I guess, like the the like ontology ideology gap.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Because I think it's worth, within the context of Jacques Lacan, and again, I have not <laughs> gone into Lacan much because I find him yeah, <laughs> irritating. <laughs> but the problem is me finding him irritating and because of that not looking into him very much means that when I have to explain Lacanian yeah. <laughs> concepts, I can't do a very good job. But, okay, this is at least like the distinction between reality and the real in my mind. So... When we as human beings interact with the world, we're interacting with whatever noumenally exists exterior to us. We're interacting with the phenomena that, that appear in our minds through interaction with something noumenal exterior to ourselves through senses, and those are run through mental models. So our we've got a particular narrative apparatus in our minds that, that situates the, these phenomena. We perceive, and so you've got you've got the real, which is this thing that exists, this thing exterior to us, but we can't see it because, or we can't see it dead on because we're always interpreting it through realities or lower. You know, he he spells reality with lowercase r, real with an uppercase r. But so realities are these interpretations of the world run through our mental narrative models, run through our, our senses and rendered into our minds as phenomena, that, ne- that they'll never perfectly correspond to the real. We can only really, we can sort of infer what the real might look like by looking at the discrepancies between these different realities that present themselves to us. And this distinction between realities and the real, and yeah, it was, it was the right thing of you to do to make us describe these things because i guess in looking for an exit from capitalist realism yeah. it, it doesn't feel <laughs> important. He says the the exit to capitalist realism is by collecting realities as presented to us by capitalism that are obviously discordant with with other realities or other things that the real is throwing up. And by seeing this discordance with the real, we might be able to to crack capitalist realism and and find a way out of it. So at least for me, that is that is the that that's yeah, the reality. So when he says reality.
1: realism, which of those two is he referring to? Reality. Okay. Reality. Reality. So, let me double check just so I'm on the same page. So I'm not getting my wires crossed. So the real is the ideological part and well, re- reality is the, the ideological part. part. Because the-
0: the real's just this thing, this numinal thing out there okay, that you so can't the interact with it. directly. You're only ever you're only ever interacting with it with like your sense experience run okay, through so mental the real
1: models. capital R. The the real is like the ontological, mm. the numinous, and realities are ideological yeah. or phenomenological.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. C- try to at keep least I like mind. I think yeah. so. So, and if there are any lacan stands <laughs> listening to us and
1: i just completely fucked that up let's let, use that let going us forward and if we fuck that up then that's then mm. so be it we'll just <laughs> carry error, error carried forward okay <laughs> we only get lose marks once yeah
0: and then someone someone should subscribe to our patreon and <laughs> so, let us know
1: there okay so with all that being said that's great i think it was important to like note that stuff um yeah you, you're, so, right. Yes, like you're right like in the title of the book so um so so capitalist <laughs> realism then is really talking about like uh, the, these like phenomenological ideological stuff we need it. and he's interestingly like mm. um he so he points out a bunch of like would you call them almost like symptoms like the, the these cultural pathologies that maybe we can talk about some of the. Yeah. I, actually, this might be the good way to frame sort of like the conversation for a bit. There's cultural pathologies that are a consequence of this mm. capitalist surrealism, and then he talks a bit about like how his his proposed approach of where to start to like puncture through it. So, do we want to talk a bit about some of the cultural pathologies? I think these were some of the interesting parts of the book as well. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we can do that
0: um did, did you have a in an terms of looking at the the but, in terms of looking yeah. through the exits yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: we'll leave that for later but because i yeah. found i got a lot out of the, he, the his discussions about here's a like a thing that's messed up and it's a and it's an aspect of yeah of yeah so
0: i think that was mm-hmm. when he's at his best when he's he's diagnosing problems in our society that are Real problems. I'm just. I'm not going to deny the reality of a number of the things that he he brings up. <laughs> reality in the non lacanian sense, <laughs> the,
1: the existence of a number of the yeah, problems. That yeah, yeah, he, yeah. So he brings up here. I think that's a really good good way to put it. It's like he has. Uh, you know, like when I found out that he committed suicide, when I read the introduction to the book or the foreword, uh, mm. I was like, oh man, that's a tragedy. Yeah, he's so young. He was only like forty something. I was like, damn, that's you know, that's sad. Um, yeah, all that. And, uh, and then I read the first chapter of the book and I'm like, Oh, well, that explains why he killed himself. Like, it's just like, it's such a, such an incredibly like negatively valenced interpretation of the world around him. And, um, I just, I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is, I think this might be like a situation where like somebody's psychology is also incredibly heavily influenced by their, um, explanatory framework for the world. So we're going to go over some ways in which Mark Fisher, perhaps quite insightfully, like diagnosed some interesting cultural issues. Which one would you like mm. to talk about first? We've got a few down there. Like, yeah, how about cynicism and irony,
0: because that is <laughs> that's something that okay, is so pervasive. Right. You get started. I'm going to and that that also ties ties into what we were talking about before. How capitalism has has arrogated to itself sort of the ground truth of reality under capitalist realism, the idea that there, there are no more meta narratives, there there's nothing more that is arbitrary in this sense. Instead now, under capitalist realism, we view what is real, what is really there. And this, this leads to this deep sense of cynicism and irony, and they function... They function in slightly different ways to reinforce capitalist realism, but both of them strongly reinforce capitalist realism. so in in the sense of cynicism, for example, he he at one stage compares the the film's heat and uh, and the Godfather. and th- this can be used to look at the one of the roles of cynicism in reinforcing capitalist realism. So, so The Godfather is, the, the criminals in The Godfather are deeply ensconced within a, a framework that in many ways works against the advancement of technique or of capitalism because they're, they're a bit, they don't optimise for perfect efficiency, these familial obligations, these obligations to a culture from Italy that has been transplanted into the United States. He compares this to Heat, a film where, the the criminals in it are... The ringleader is this guy who says, yeah, I don't get attached to anything. There's nothing in my life that I won't walk out on in 30 seconds flat. All of the people with whom he works are hired professionals who are not there for any sort of purpose beyond just making cash. They just, just want to get a job done. They just want to perform their technique well, efficiently, and leave. And... The cynicism comes in reinforcing capitalist realism where it views the the criminals in heat as being more realistic. So they, they understand how the world works better. They're more aware of... They've, they've lost this this naive attachment to place or time or anything more abstract like that. They view reality. He also... He talks about the cynicism also being present, for example, in rap. He says that part of the reason why rap's doing so well and why, like, after 2009, rap's just gotten bigger because, in large part, rap really commodifies this cynicism, this belief that rappers see what the world truly is. They don't see it through a romantic lens of being attached to a time or a place. Instead, they see it as violence, acquisition of resources, and not. Not much more it's you know, it is he describes it as being real, and that happens to be highly commodifiable and it's interesting in the in the context of heat and rap. you can see how cynicism reinforces capitalist realism by dismissing the existence of anything above the supposed reality of of capitalism, of this Darwinian struggle for resources which justifies capitalism. So that's the way in which cynicism is, at least in Mark Fisher's telling, used to reinforce capitalism. Irony functions slightly differently, but it also reinforces capitalism. He says that irony is this way basically for people to act in a way that just completely supports capitalism by being a management consultant, while interiorly being able to disavow capitalism, so feel not feel any sort of tension between their beliefs and actions. So like I have met people who work for McKinsey who will claim to be socialists uh, that will will disavow capitalism and things like that. And I think, yeah mate you work you work for McKinsey like you it's completely incoherent that you hold these beliefs or people who work for international corporate law firms whose clients are Gazprom and things like that, who will also claim to have like some sort of Marxist beliefs. And Fisher says that irony allows this to, to continue because the, these people interiorly feel a disconnect from what they're doing. They interiorly disavow it. And so exteriorly can basically fulfill functions that allow this to continue. While ironically distancing
1: themselves from their own behaviour, I knew you would like this section like that. this, this yeah, I knew you would like. Yeah, this, this is a good section. section.
0: I've met a lot of people like this, and I
1: just they never <laughs> fail to shit me up the wall. Oh, <laughs> uh, so funny. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's like, um, you know, you're working at BCG on like, I don't know, uh, what is it called? ESG, like. Uh, environmental and social good, mm. or is that what it stands for? I don't know, environmental sustainability and government governance or something. And it's like, yeah, but yeah, something like that. Like, what are you actually concretely doing? And and that is funny, if you ask sometimes like mm. these people, if you and I think you actually I think I, there's a party I was at where you you were quite pointed with one of your questions.
0: Yeah. So I met someone who worked at one of the big full banks you asked in Australia very on SG, and I just said straight up like what do you think and didn't they just say like nah, nah he was it's like
1: nah nah we have to sell like, so like 80% yeah, of that yeah, portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> to, <laughs> and be it's really this. just, uh, you know, and actually, again, it's like I think like Mark Fisher as a diagnostician, I would say what I'm, about, what I'm about to say conforms to one of his diagnoses, which is like the obsession with representation instead of actually like doing something. So you're, you're as a corporation.
0: Reading this made me think a lot of... Um... So the Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord. Which is influential on in
1: Fisher as well.
0: I read probably six months ago, and I reckon we'll be actually quite good for this podcast. We would need to do some preparatory how, reading, uh, particularly on
1: commodity how long is it? fetishization. Uh, is but it like a multi-episode one? Or is it... Oh, that's fine.
0: 100, 160
1: pages or so. It's I quite it. dense, yeah, but I, it's not it very long. Like an interest. I'd be interested in reading that. Yeah. Um, sure. So, it's a good book. I really liked it. Yeah. Really interesting, this idea of like interiority. It's almost like you need an internal sense Mm. of coherence, versus like if you're if you're in a say a bureaucracy in a university and you like this the example that he gives is you interiorly have uh, disdain for the bureaucracy and the processes and stuff, but then Mm. exteriorly Mm. like you actually have to do them, so you do it in this kind of like ironic, uh, detached sort of detached way. uh, I guess it it would be like deadening, wouldn't it, to to do that sort of thing like. For your, you're like doing mm, one mm, thing with mm. your body and then thinking another thing with your with your mind. Interesting.
0: Yeah, and he used I think he used the example. Of, it was some administrator, some administrative bureaucrat in British further education, whom uh, of whom Fisher said this, this person had this 1960s baby boomer hippie. Uh, anti-authoritarian self-image, and while at the same time behaved as a highly controlling bureaucrat, while also maintaining this at least affective distance from it and ironic detachment from his work. The, the thing is, too, it's like just because a number, of my, like a number of my friends now work in these sorts of roles, you can also see the ironic detachment at work
1: yeah, that must be a huge yeah. Huge,
0: so Fisher is
1: Fisher is diagnostician. I think is that that's yeah. when he's at his I best. I guess it's nice to talk about the ideas, but in like with this with this particular thing, I don't necessarily have like a criticism of it. It's it's interesting. It's yeah. I think to mm. mm, mm. you know like okay, try to come up with a criticism. Maybe if like uh, maybe it's just because he's arguing in the arguing it in the book, but uh, you know, I can see that thing happening my reservation would be to what degree is it like as all pervasive as he claims it to be this. um You know, I, I was thinking mm. about this in the shower shower thoughts before the episode is like uh sometimes I think people make the mistake of what, what I call the monolith people conceive of, mm-hmm. especially with regards to groups of people. So like, um, if, uh, you know, like somebody asks me a question about Indigenous Australians and it's it's presupposing some sort of homogeneity or like monolithic sort of like culture or, or something. And I have to explain to them, actually there's a lot of diversity, you know, like my experience of being Indigenous is extremely different to other people's and all this like complexity and stuff. So like the sort of basis of your question is not like we have to, you know, put some caveats around it. Um, But another type of mistake, which I think uh, is slightly different, but related to the monolithic mistake is what I call the monolithic misconception is class of misconceptions is what I think I'm going to call the miasma mistake or the miasma misconception. So you just have like you, you say this thing is just like all pervasive. It's like the air we breathe. It's like the like you can't get out of this thing. It's this, it's this miasma that's just like you're breathing in. It's constant and it's not monolithic. It's, it's diffuse. It's systemic. And like when people are making those sorts of claims, like <clears throat> Mark Fisher, because the world's so big and complex and stuff, you can sit down and you could probably fill up a thousand pages of examples of that sort of stuff happening, but filling up a thousand, like giving me a thousand examples of something happening does not mean that it's pervasive because of how big the world is and stuff like it, You have to go beyond just listing mm. examples. And, um, I don't necessarily find just like listing more and more examples, any more compelling than like the first example that the person gives, um, unless they're able to like go beyond an argument, like give an argument beyond just listing examples.
0: Yeah, I think my, uh, I wouldn't even call it a criticism of it. I would call it sort of contextualizing this. I would say this is, at least in my experience, just because I know a lot of people in university-educated white-collar jobs, this is a very, very, like this is highly descriptive of the, I guess, corporate world or white-collar public sector University-educated world, a highly bureaucratized environment, and it becomes more acute the more it's sort of I almost regard it as bureaucratically rapacious the organisation is. So, for example, with a large international London uh, corporate law firm, which I won't name, (laughs) but no, a lot of the people whom I know who work there have come through the university system. And as a result of going through like a number of years of higher education, many of them have, I guess, what Curtis Yarvin would call like a universalist philosophy. So they they tend to be very, very socially liberal, very interested in social justice, things like that. And then they're, because they also tend to be highly motivated by prestige within their, their social group of highly educated white-collar workers, they go for organizations like like city uh, corporate law firms, which are highly rapacious organizations. Like they will be working for clients who are, who, whose existence kind of goes against the, the stated beliefs of many of the workers there to work on deals for those organizations, to do things like it, prevent them from paying taxes or let them get around sanctions, they, they'll accept payment in diamonds and oil <laughs> and cash and gold, all sorts of things that kind of mm. you would expect your average member of Socialist Alternative on campus wouldn't like, but those people are now working for these organisations. And I think in that context particularly, uh Fisher's description of the use of cynicism and irony in allowing people to continue working in those organizations Mm, mm, is very, very accurate. mm. Does this apply to a plumber? (laughs) No, (laughs) no, it it doesn't. Like, does it apply to an electrician? Yeah, Yeah. No. Yeah. So I think the more bureaucratic a job and the more a job has this kind of rapaciousness at a remove where you are just a cog in a machine that is acting to do things that I think many of the, the individual people within our organisation would not like, but feel that if, well, if, uh, if I were to leave, I would just be replaced by someone else who'd do the same thing. So I might, may as well draw the paycheck for it. The more a job aligns with that, the more valid
1: uh uh fish's diagnosis yeah is, for sure at least in my, you know like getting a getting a knowledge work job and and um you know, software engineering is still creative and it's interesting i wouldn't say it has necessarily the same i guess mm. it depends what company you're working for sure you could work for i don't know unnamed companies that just uh what you've just described and you're a replaceable engineer um who's just like trying to optimize like trading algorithms or something Mm. like uh (laughs) but that aside like i find software engineering creative and interesting and not necessarily like that but i will say despite that getting a knowledge work job and like seeing white collar work and stuff has given me just like so much more respect for like the trades and cross cross cross-based uh professions Mm. uh as yeah just i think they just have to deal with so much less of this crap uh that I kind of, kind of jealous at times, just like imagine just being an electrician and just like being out to go, you just do a good job, fix the thing, the people pay you and now you feel good because you've made their home safer or whatever and you've gotten paid. Like just, yeah. Anyways, kind of
0: jealous at times. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't even have to be something like that. It's just like there's there doesn't have to be this this gulf between yeah, your stated yeah, yeah. beliefs or your ideals and then what you
1: do for yeah, four yeah, yeah. hours a day. <laughs> this is yeah, that must be gap, terrible. So could we move on to another diagnosis Absolutely that he didn't. gets right? I'm gonna talk about yes. I really like this concept. Uh, interpassivity. Oh, is this Yeah. So yeah, this is let me so scroll good. down to my notes so that I don't This is so uh mess this up. So my understanding of interpassivity that I've written down for myself uh, is uh, the media, Hollywood and so forth, performs our anti-capitalism. So if you have an anti-capitalist sentiment, the media performs Mm. that on our behalf, allowing the person who ostensibly holds an anti-capitalist point of view to just... As uh, Mark Fisher says, to consume with impunity, <laughs> so you don't actually have yeah, to, yeah, 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 back up your anti-capitalist um, uh, feelings or thoughts with some sort of meaningful action behind them. You know, you've essentially outsourced that to well, you know, this Hollywood film. It you know, mm-hmm. was actually that's a. I hated this film, man. Did you see this film? It's this film about a boat. And there's these Instagram influencers. They like get, they win some, there's a couple who's who are Instagram influencers and they win a ticket to go on this boat. And it's full Mm. of, they, it's full of rich people basically like an arms dealer and like, I don't know, like some Russian entrepreneur who sells fertilizer or something like, and they're all douchebags basically everybody's a douchebag. And then the boat crashes and they end up on an Island and it turns into this kind of like Lord of the flies sort of funny thing where the Filipino like um chef or whatever becomes like because she's the most useful person becomes the head of the tribe on the island and like where all the rich douchebags are like dependent on her and stuff and it yeah it's like Mm. it's a good premise for a a film but then the actual execution was lame i really didn't like it and it's but it 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 is one of Mm. these films that is it is it is this yeah yeah the person who who directed it is a marxist maybe even French, if I remember correctly. And they have all these criticisms about capitalism. Like, it's all just, it's just its just so on the nose, just like, I'm criticizing capitalism and stuff. It's like, fine, whatever. Uh, But then it's like, at least according to Fisher, he'd be saying, well, yeah, but in making that film and just selling it like a commodity, like every other fucking film, and now it's on Netflix or whatever, your audience and what you're like, participating in as the director and the film producers, you're participating in this like interpassivity. You're just allowing your audience to yeah. uh, externalize uh, or outsource their anti-capitalist sentiments to you. And now they can just go back to mm-hmm. the the next movie on Netflix. And uh, I've got a good, good thing to talk about at the next yeah. party I go to or whatever.
0: <laughs> Cause it's interesting thinking of, of Fisher's problem situation where he was, trying to work out why under capitalism are there so many anti-capitalist films or pieces of music or books and why don't they seem to do anything? And one of the reasons, one of the explanations he came across is this idea of interpassivity as opposed to interactivity. So interactivity, you are taking some sort of action. Interpassivity, you're you're taking part in a passive consumption of of anti-capitalism. Did you have any thoughts about it? Did you? what do you reckon? I guess also, so in addition to the, the function of allowing someone to passively feel like they are living according to their interior beliefs in a capitalist system by just consuming something which depicts resistance to capitalism, these sort of interpassive uh, pieces of media also absolve the subjects of capitalism of a sense of guilt, so there might be if, if your interiority is one of anti-capitalism and your exteriority is one of absolutely supporting capitalism, then these sort of these sort of say in, in the con, in for example, the anti-capitalist film you talked about, watching that might also provide some sort of sense of of it's expiation very, it's, of guilt. It's very Catholic. So you, you've, you've participated <laughs> yeah, in yeah, a yeah. disavowal <laughs> of capitalism, and therefore you passively lighten that, I guess, psychological dissonance for a period of time until you you watch another one of these films when it, it all gets too <laughs> much. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I liked this idea of, of interpensivity yeah. a lot, and I, I do think it has yeah.
1: descriptive, especially power. when you. Yeah, I guess you know. I actually asked um, a buddy of mine about uh, about this because their perspective is often very anti-capitalist. I was like, "Yeah, but you know, like, you don't like if you really have such strong feelings, like you don't have to participate. Like, why don't you just like, you know, in the nth degree, there's monks who just go and you know, they completely." Mm. um tap out and just go and watch their breath for 30 years. But there's people who like go and uh, homestead yeah. or, you know, there's, um, and go and live in the bush, learn how to hunt, live in the bush. <laughs> like, I don't know, like in Australia, like the national parks are so big, you actually right. could do that. And I, you could, there are, could <laughs> just disappear. Like it'd be a really yeah, hard life, a, but there's you this could place the walls of Jerusalem in Tasmania. Beautiful. Amazing. Uh, amazing national or mm. state or national park, whatever. And there are actually, uh, there's a, it's so it's, it's absolutely so gorgeous romantic. it's like one of my favorite walks actually i want to do it again before the weather gets bad um and uh, apparently there are actually like a couple of people living in the walls of jerusalem somewhere or uh, yeah. <laughs> and you sometimes see apparently people sometimes see them and you know they fish and stuff but they just they're just happy interestingly funnily enough in tasmania there's these uh these random huts like these I guess they were put up by settlers or whatever, like European settlers. And so all over Tasmania, there's these random, like old little huts that you can come across sometimes, and they're not necessarily all known the locations are, but like Tasmanians who have lived mm. here for ages or the family, like might know where the secret locations are. So some of these people find like these huts in these <laughs> national parks and they just like set up shop there and stuff. So my point to my yeah, point yeah. to him was like, why don't you, you know. If this, is this actually like how much you dislike capitalism or whatever? Like, why do you participate? And the response was, well, I don't really have a choice. Or at least, well, you do have a choice if you want access to all of the things that this civilization has to offer, like iPhones and stuff. Like if you want access to that, yeah, you can't get it in the bush. But it's a choice to, have, to participate. Like, you don't actually, at least in Australia, you don't have to. Just most people would rather not live in, in the bush. They'd rather live, they'd participate in...
0: I guess the, yeah. the cost might be higher. So you could also say that this, this person's family and friends but presumably aren't going to follow him to Western Tasmania. Yeah, and
1: so there's social... social, Which is... But there are people who...
0: Yeah, so like I guess there's that. But I guess, yeah, there is exit. It's just the cost for most is...
1: It's very high, and there, but there are people who go and homestead or like go to... Uh, isn't the, the entire premise mm. of like uh, kibbutzes was like having these like little local economies where they're like pretty isolated and stuff. So people do it. Mm. And mm. I guess what I'm just like pushing back against is that it's not just totally not your choice. Like if you really... Like people who take these yeah. ideas seriously actually go and do stuff about it, <laughs> you know? Um, but if you want to like... L- Live Go in the middle of like Ted Sydney and like have a nice apartment and like a uh, you know, like a nice brand new car and then just complain about capitalism and stuff. Well, interpassivity is your way out of <laughs> that bind, yeah. Yeah, it is
0: really interesting that Fisher says this combination of ir- or ironic distance of cynicism and interpassivity is so much more powerful than any form it's of fucking crazy. Could he, ever I think be. he.
1: He he was onto something here this is very insightful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a, the more anti-capitalist media you produce the more you so deepen capitalism what video. a head trip. Because it just it just sucks in that protest and commodifies it. What a head trip that is it such sells a trip.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what about reflexive impotence? Yeah. Did you have any thoughts about I can't really remember that concept so maybe you have to Reflexive impotence
0: it's I think this is useful to discuss in comparison with he he calls it liberal communism or I guess being smart. So reflexive impotent, impotence is basically he was using it to describe students and teachers operating within British further education which when he worked in it was highly bureaucratized to the point where teachers couldn't really Choose to do anything of their own volition. They had to teach according to to standardized bureaucratic tools, and were constantly subject to to the nexus between auditing and PR, which we can talk about in when we talk about market stalinism within within this system of feeling that there's no alternative to this extremely restrictive bureaucracy on behalf of the teachers and then on behalf of the students, feeling that there's no exit to a world where you're never going to be able to afford a house, you can barely afford food, you are going to have a job you hate that you just don't feel like contributes anything to the world or to what you want to do, it doesn't pay you much. You feel extremely disempowered. And he calls this state reflexive, what was it? Reflexive impotence. So... He says it's actually, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, hence the reflexivity, this belief that nothing can get better and there's no point, that that if you truly believe that, if that is your model of the world, then nothing will get better. It just, it can't possibly do that. And he says in Britain, many young people fall into reflexive uh, impotence. And he compares this to french students so british students mostly reflexively impotent they're just they're just totally passive he compares this to french students who he says are they're different but similarly unproductive if it comes to somehow escaping capitalism he calls them immobilizers so he says that they'll they almost seek to they seek the aesthetics of protest particularly the 1968 student protests They seek those aesthetics and use the same slogans, dress in the same way, perform the same, I guess, movements of protest, so they march in the same way to the same places. But interestingly, it's to stop things from changing. So he referenced some... Let me have a look for it.
1: Uh,
0: Yeah, so... He references the 2006 student protests in France, which were against a law that would have made it very easy to fire workers under 26 years of age within the first two years of their their contract. Fisher calls the people who protest against the advance of capitalism while tacitly demonstrating their belief that capitalism can only be resisted but never overcome. That is, they're still within capitalist realism or still in its thrall. He calls them immobilizers. They want to just hold things in place. They're displaying this real conservatism of a conservatism and a deep pessimism of, okay, things are bad, but we just don't want them to become worse, so we're just going to hold it in place. In stasis. So that's, that's Man, the, the... Yeah, liberal? yeah. Passive, re- reflexive impotence versus immobilising. He also then actually con- contrasts this with a third current that he calls liberal communism, that he says people like Bill mm. Gates mm. or George Soros uh, are exemplars of. People who rapaciously generate very large amounts of money but then also espouse very socially liberal ideas and also espouse what he calls being smart and he regards as an internalisation of capitalist realism. So being smart in his telling is, is effectively being fungible you're you're rootless you're not tied to a place you're not tied to a culture you're not tied to a particular type of work so you're flexible i guess the the learn to code is mm, is mm. emblematic of this so when a yeah. when truck driver loses their job people say i'll oh, learn to code <laughs> um you, you should be flexible enough to absorb getting fired or changing careers regularly moving for work living weird hours not being tied down by things like family because that that impi- impairs your flexibility. It's it's a caricature of a type of person, but I can see elements of the caricature in <laughs> Jack's, like in Levi. He talks about <laughs> yeah. certain young people, yeah, <laughs> bragging about being being motivated, so signing up to lots and lots of um, internships, yeah, and multiple yeah, internships, yeah. <laughs> uh, subdividing their time in such a way as to. To maximize A-types. the output of each day. What, yeah, A types, yeah. A <laughs> types. <laughs> Sigma grinds it. Uh,
1: that's really interesting. Do you think that is a. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, no I, was, I was just going to round that off by saying, yeah, those are the, these three types of people that he talks about the immobilizers, the, the reflexively impotent, and,
1: and people who are being smart, the, yeah. <laughs> the liberal communists. Really interesting. Some interesting people that he. he uh, oh. Yeah, I just said like caricatures or whatever, or maybe archetypes. Archetypes. I guess maybe why they appear mm. caricatures is yeah, they're
0: archetypal. So maybe no individual is going to fully conform to the archetype, but you have elements of these archetypes. I think different. that's
1: a good segue into the next concept, which is I've again, another a really interesting thing that he, as a diagnostician, I've found very fruitful reading him this idea of Fordism versus post Fordism. And the first time that I'd heard of it, mm. but I think it comes from. Deleuze or somebody else, this idea of like, dis- no, it comes from Foucault, doesn't it? Like, dis- discipline versus culture, control. Discipline's Foucault. still. Deleuze. No, so, like, maybe we can talk is, a little bit about discipline versus control societies and Fordism and post Fordism. Mm, mm. um, I, I can talk about the Fordism and post Fordism. Maybe could you talk about discipline versus control societies or something i yeah. a little bit shakier on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to preface oh, this okay. by I- saying this is my favorite bit of the book. The discipline and control
1: okay. and the market well, symbolism. give us I think what is what is a, what is a disciplined society and what's a control society and what's the the key distinction between the two? And which one do we live in under capitalist realism? Oh sure. So so he says that there's been a shift or the shift is underway
0: between from a disciplined society to a control society. A disciplined society he pulls from Foucault and he says that these are top-down hierarchical societies. Often based around some sort of enclosure. So he uses a factory as a, a prototypical example of a, a discipline relationship. And within a factory, you'll have a, the owner and the foreman as the, the owner's delegate controlling the workers. These workers are. Foucault, he elaborated a system or elucidated a system of particular positions that people take in these. So he says that disciplined societies. They exteriorly and from above impose discipline. So people in the factory will be sitting in certain rigid positions performing a single action without talking or communicating because those sort of things impair efficiency. They're just sitting at a production line just performing this one job with exterior control or exterior discipline imposed upon them to make them work. And there are a lot of bad things about discipline societies. So they're, they're stultifying. It's repetitive work. You're enclosed in what might be an unpleasant environment. You have a clear symbol of of someone telling you what to do, or a clear hierarchy that you're at the bottom of. And he says that these are uh, these these correspond to Fordist modes of production. So Fordism from I'm assuming he's just referring to Henry Ford, who had a way of producing cars cheaply on a production line. Where basically each worker on the production line did a job, and they were basically a standardized component. And it was meant to be horribly boring. Ford did pay his workers really, really well, so like he tried. I doubt this was from the goodness of his heart, and more just to make people tolerate extremely boring, repetitive labor. But he paid them a lot because he said like yeah, this is just what you need to do to make people behave like automata, but the, these were places which had a rigid top-down discipline imposed. And Fisher says that there were good elements. Like the work was predictable and you tended to have the work for life. So those were, those were good things, but the, he says the, the right used workers' uh, reasonable desires not to work at the same factory for 40 years, doing the same movement basically for eight hours a day five days a week against them in deregulating the labor market and making work highly unstable, imposing the need for flexibility upon people. And this, this deepened the transition to what he calls a control society. So a control society is very different from a disciplined society. A control society is cybernetic in the sense that it relies on a... A decentralised system of feedback loops to maintain integrity, rather than a top-down command model. And so, a control society becomes centreless very quickly. There's not there's not one person at the top of it saying you are going to do this. Instead, it's it's this massively interlinked series of feedback loops, all maintaining each other's integrity and maintaining the integrity so, of the
1: overall system. So. Yeah, we'll, so we'll like go into the details. Control societies, top-down hierarchical, or is that that's discipline? And control no, the, societies, d- discipline. Are like, discipline is top-down Like as in like control theory, like feed information-based feedback loops, like mm-hmm. more distributed that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's one in which the the individual worker has internalized the the discipline that used to be imposed from top down. They've they surveil themselves. I guess we, we can roll this into talking about about market stalinism here, because this is a good example of control, a control society unfolding. So <laughs> this is maybe my favorite term in the book, because it's just very funny: market Stalinism. He says that a key component of Stalinism under, under Stalin, so it, in, in the Soviet Union was that it came to value representation or symbols more than whatever was was underlying those symbols. So that is to say, they valued the, the appearance or the representation of meeting production targets above actually fulfilling whatever need those targets were put into place to alleviate. And he says that this is the same, or this is unleashed in a control society. So he uses the example of spreading bureaucracy in capitalist societies as an example of market Stalinism and as an example of control societies. So within a market Stalinist system, for example, the education system in the United Kingdom, he says that in his experience, you had the appearance of, hmm, how would I say it? In order to Make the system regulate itself. They imposed all sorts of bureaucratic requir- requirements. So, initially, you had external auditing to make sure, ostensibly, the, the stated goal was to make sure that teachers or education providers were providing the education that was desired. He says, or Fisher says, that the point of auditing is actually just PR because. The auditing doesn't change things meaningfully. And it's not reacting to things that reflect the, at least, ostensible goals of, in this case, education, that is, educating children. In, instead, it, it actually boils down to how effectively each individual worker fulfills bureaucratic functions. So, how effectively they, f- they fill out self assessment reports, how well children do on standardized tests, which leads to the stalinist emphasis on a representation above whatever is represented so in the case of standardized tests teachers will only te- teach children to do the tests really really well that is they are optimizing for the representation over the the stated goal of educating children well and this is all this is all to fulfill some pr so such that an audit says that they are doing well and on the basis of that, I think he says if, hmm, no, so, I, so as not to confuse things, that's what market Stalinism is. So market Stalinism is the use of this decentralised cybernetic control system of auditing and PR to, I guess, there's, there's, no, there's no stated goal of the existence of market Stalinism. It's this thing that no one particularly mm. wants. Mm. When they're ensconced in it, but they can't seem to escape. Yeah, so I it. think
1: he did a good job of uh, this explaining what he means by actually using an example from 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 Stalin. Mm, from like, yeah, that Stalin's might be clear. Like Stalin wanted, was it a dam built or something like that? Yeah, the White something like, like that. The White and Canal Basically, it was a huge waste of resources. A bunch of people died, and then it ended up not being used very much or something like that. Like it's basically a massive flop. Um, but uh, but the people who came to it were basically like, you know, journalists and stuff who are all paid off or like under the jurisdiction of the Stalinist um, propaganda machine. And they went and they just said, yeah, it's great. It's amazing. It's a huge success and all this sort of stuff. And so that they cared more like Stalin and it wasn't just this project. Like apparently there was a bunch of these sorts of projects under Stalin uh, where the actual consequence of the project, the dam, the canal or whatever was like either a massive waste of resources or actually like straight up disaster. Um, But that never actually got Mm. spoken about. Instead they they cared more about the representation of this as being like a grand project. That was a success. And especially when communicating that internally to their own citizens and then externally to the West. And, And now yeah, I guess importantly too, within that,
0: what what the people organising the project ultimately wanted from the project yeah. is yeah, that yeah. journalists would like it. Like the, the,
1: for them, the representation yeah, that's, was that's what the they're going after. And analogously, he draws he, he draws some parallels between, say, like the educational stuff. Uh, what is it? It's like uh, where you just as a teacher, you could just like because your performance is going to be based on like what score your kids get in the naplan which is like this standardized test in australia in australia for like in australia you know, yeah the, NAPLAN tens or whatever i don't know whatever and so you just optimize your teaching mm. around like getting them to pass that test rather than actually caring about their learning yeah um and uh he also uses the call center example i think that was a market stalinist example as well was mm. it or was mm. that something slightly different that was just bureaucracy in general that
0: was talking about, yeah, very, very related. I think the centerless bureaucracy, but that ties yeah, in. Yeah. Like that's so really I, I found that really Stalinism. interesting.
1: Yeah. It's and because it's not a top-down thing like in Stalinism, it's this diffuse. I suppose he's saying mm. this emerges. Is he saying that this is a? This is essentially one of the things that happens under capitalist realism. Like people think. Actually, we can't really question it where capitalists were capitalist, where capitalist society were being efficient we're using objective measures like we're um you know assessing performance and all this stuff and then that sort of actually turns into this uh frankenstein's monster of of organizations across across the economy. You have these like pockets of this market stalinism
0: I don't think he directly says that this this centralist bureaucracy is necessarily is it a feature of mm. capitalist realism like it's a diagnosis so he certainly said that the the arising of the excessive bureaucracy is a place where where people who want to overcome capitalist realism could point to as a discrepancy between reality and the real so the the stated uh, goal of yeah, capitalism yeah, yeah. to <laughs> be more efficient and to reduce bureaucracy but you then compare that to the reality of, oh, well, actually, there's way more bureaucracy than there was before. So there's that. I think whether he says it's a natural outcome of capitalism itself is less clear. He does, he does say that the top-down nature of Stalin's rule was it entailed a disciplined society, which did restrain the emergence of this centerless bureaucracy, whereas capitalism has allowed that to to deepen. It's allowed a control society to begin emerging, which lends itself very, very well to a centerless bureaucracy because all of the individual people within the bureaucracy have internalized this self-surveillance of filling out, say, self-audit forms, and because you never want to to audit yourself as being better than what your, say, superior audits you as, you always understate your performance, which he compared to a, like a bureaucratic Maoist self-criticism <gasps> mm-hmm. session, which was <laughs> extremely funny. But that sort of internalisation and how you begin to, in the case of further education, teach with the goal in mind of fulfilling bureaucratic paperwork first, of representing your teaching well yeah, over yeah, yeah. actually teaching well, he says that that arises or is allowed to flourish under capitalism without the, the constraint provided by top-down discipline under Stalinism. So I guess if he's not saying that this is a direct consequence of capitalism, he is saying that it constrains the
1: emergence of a controlled society less than Bolshevism did Yeah, so why did you you like this part, like the discipline control for post-Ford and market style? I liked it because it just seemed to describe this strange
0: situation so well of how, at least on one hand, a lot of governments, at least in the Western world, will talk about how they're making things more efficient, how they're making things better. They like smaller states, while at the same time, just this spread of bureaucracy <laughs> yeah, yeah. has been so massive, and I consider a lot of it to be even if it's not formally state, it's it is part of the state because it's mandated by the state and it's in large part implemented because the state wants it. So I view it as this strange semi-state
1: outgrowth into yeah, that's really so many I, aspects I of hadn't society. Of that, but that's uh, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point. It's kind of like. It's, uh, well, if, assuming it's coming from something like a regulatory framework, um, you know, like mm. even something like, I was talking to an architect about uh, uh, about like, you know, just the process of building stuff, right? And he made an interesting point. He's like, yeah, we kind of like design according to regulation. Like we have to make sure, okay, mm. we can't just make corridors whatever size we want in a residential building. Like we have to have, mm, it. Mm. and you know, there's arguments for and against it, you know, like disability access and that sort of stuff. Sure. Whatever. But it also just made me realize like, Oh, okay. So like somebody's decision about that regulation in, you know, like if it's a state regulation, like in the capital city, has now seeped into all of the buildings, like has physical consequences. It's like, you know, so like mm, mm. their preferences, the, those political preferences, you know, as well-intentioned as they might be uh, actually like it seeps into our physical structures, like our built environment and stuff. Um, yeah. And obviously with regards to this stuff as, as well, if, if it's something like uh, educational uh, stuff. Then it's like, okay, it was actually shaping the way that kids are, are learning and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really yeah, yeah, bit of a trip actually <laughs> to think what's about. What's even
0: <laughs> what's even more unsettling? So, what you were describing with regulations, it's, at least that has some sort of locus of control. At least some group of people said, okay, mm-hmm. these are the regulations mm-hmm. that we're going to tell everyone they have to follow. What? like an example of a true control situation that that Fisher cites is this particular time i think he was part of some meeting between politicians lecturers and teachers within the further education system bureaucrats who were who were implementing uh, particular regulations upon the educational system to discuss the the massive expansion of bureaucratic burden upon teachers, which teachers really weren't happy with because it's just taking away time that they could be used using to teach people. And I, from my experiences in healthcare, like the, the administrative burden upon doctors is massive. Like so much time is spent filling out administrative things as opposed to seeing patients. It's certainly not limited to the United Kingdom. It's certainly not limited to education. But they were trying to work out where all of these new regulations or new requirements kept coming from. And politicians said, no, we're not coming up with these. Like, this is not coming from us. It's coming from somewhere else. Where it was coming from, it was coming from individual bureaucrats trying to interpret what they were meant to be doing. And on the basis of their interpretation of, of legislation and of regulations, were making their own regulations and Imposing new bureaucratic burdens upon teachers on the basis of that interpretation, so it's a bureaucracy that is generating its own bureaucratic yeah, burdens. That's, and yeah. that, when I heard of that, I thought, "Yeah, wow, this is it's actually just control—a runaway cybernetic system." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I guess part of the reason why I liked this part the most was from an aesthetic perspective because I just I like the that fear. <laughs> engendered by a runaway cybernetic system. It's just not under anyone's control. It's just it's doing its own thing independently of what any individual yeah, node the, within that system uh, the wants. Yeah,
1: likes a bit of fear when he's reading his uh, social criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very funny. <laughs> so there was. there's definitely
0: the aesthetic component from which I really like market Stalinism, but I also really like it in that it's attempting to describe something that is, is very real. Like... We have seen a huge expansion of bureaucratic surveillance and interference in increasingly more granular parts of work and life, and Fisher is trying to explain why this is happening, despite the fact that at least the, the exteriorly presented face of our politics is oftentimes or oh, we want to make things more efficient and reduce the burden <laughs> and, and make it more agile agile <laughs> swift and agile we're economy. using
1: design thinking to 10 improve out of 10 our education slug. for our students yeah it's all a bunch of bullshit um <laughs> <laughs> uh, you definitely yeah. see this in the larger <laughs> universities so uh okay so that's really it's really interesting so just a quick note or like a quick side story uh two seconds and then i've got some follow-up questions to move along with um i was speaking to an accountant about his work and he said that so he works at like a like a large corporate not like a local accountant accountant office but like a large corporate thing and he works remotely from home and the uh the firm is introducing like uh surveillance technology onto onto the computers for that. So they'll track like all the apps. Yeah. So they track yeah, a few you my friends, apps yes. and when you log on, when you log off, all that sort of stuff. Um, so Jack, have you been watching hours uh, that like furry vor? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay, well, you know, that's gross. You know, I guess it's a large corporate. What are you going to do? Like if you don't like it, leave. But, but what was funny is that he goes, yeah, but you know, what was really the, like a really weird thing about it is that uh, one of the quote unquote corporate values is uh, like, we are a family or something like that. <laughs> and he raised this, he raised this to mm-hmm. his manager. He says, he's like, I, you know, went to my manager. What, you know, like, we're supposed to be like fit fa- like this company is a family or whatever. But families don't install surveillance technology on each other's <laughs> thing and itself. his manager, his manager, <laughs> <sorry>. his <laughs> That's manager, what his manager said. His manager his manager didn't say, like, oh yeah, there's a real conflict there. Like, maybe we should reconsider. I'll like take this to the higher ups and reconsider like this policy of, like, so mass surveillance. Of, it goes, mass surveillance. Hmm. Yeah, no, our, ling- our language is a bit off there, isn't it?
0: <laughs> I also just find something so grotesque about assigning, assigning designations like family to entities which cannot possibly be families. It's like, yeah. no, you're paying people to be here. This is not a family. So... That is not that is not like Fisher complains about. Yeah, yeah. Something And that so Joe like just about. I had
1: this that interaction like this past week and I just thought that was like so, so like on point with regards to this capitalist realism stuff like this stuff that he's talking about. Like this is just case in point. Uh so there's another couple of concepts that you might want to put in the diagnostic section or whatever, but I don't know if they're as important or if or if they're as um so that's the big other mm-hmm. and dream work and memory. And I don't know if there are strong concepts, or if we need, like, we can touch on them, but maybe they're not as, maybe not as strong. Can talk about the, mm.
0: I can talk about the big other a bit. Dreamwork and memory. I thought that was the weakest chapter, by quite. And then we right, can I, move I, on I to how to exit capitalist chapter.
1: realism. So why don't you give us the, the the yeah. big other, the big other,
0: some Jacques Lacan. <laughs> so. I guess this this was a, another one of Fisher's attempts to describe. I guess the problem of why do people within a system cooperate with aspects of it that make them that make them miserable? So Fisher says that in part it's because of the big other. So the big other is a Lacanian concept as opposed to the little other, or other spelt with a lowercase O as opposed to other spelt with an uppercase O. So the little other is how the ego views itself from outside, giving the impression of a harmonious unitary ego. And Lacan uses the image of one seeing oneself in a mirror and thereby viewing oneself as an object, not a subject. And it's, it's an imaginary fiction of unity. As opposed to this, the big other, capital O other, is a symbolic fiction and, and it operates through our language and social norms. It's this hypothetical other person, almost a perfect model citizen other who observes our behavior from without. And importantly, it's from without and for whom we perform. It's linked to the little other because both of these others are viewing ourselves, our ego, as this harmonious unitary ego who is known from its exterior actions so so this big other as it's not omniscient is something to whom we present ourselves using exterior behavior and we hide aspects of ourselves that we don't want the big other to know these these things that we think would be social taboos for example so as such we we present action that we want the big other to see we want uh, this model citizen who embodies all of the the social norms to see by only acting out behaviors that we think they would like because those are the only behaviors that the big other can see because the big other can't see interiorly we keep hidden things or thoughts that we don't want the big other to see by not acting them out we keep them inside ourselves and he he concretizes, or he uses this concept of the big other, in the con- in the the case of of Stalinism, of the the Soviet or the market varieties. When everyone seems to know that the system is not working properly, if you if you asked someone in 1988, not under Stalin but un- under Bolshevism, do you think this current system is working? And many of them if they were to speak openly, would say, no, it's probably not working. But part of the reason why they don't say it openly, even though everyone seems to agree with them, or most seem to agree with them, is in part because they don't want the big other to learn that the system is not working properly. And he uses the example here of of Gerald Ratner, a jeweller who had a a chain of inexpensive jewellery stores uh, he described in an after-dinner speech the jewellery sold in his stores as crap. And this was the sort of thing where everyone probably knew that the jewellery wasn't bad, that you, you're not going to be buying really great jewellery for £10, but but the big other in, in Fisher's telling wasn't aware that it was crap. But in attempting to circumvent the symbolic ratner Wiped five hundred million pounds off the value of his company, and the company had to. Uh, it, the company ended up going broke. Fisher says customers might previously have known that the jewellery Ratners sold was poor quality, but the big other didn't know. As soon as it did, Ratners collapsed. So this this big other, I guess, is this this invisible, diffuse figure who who animates, control societies. He say animates bureaucracies because bureaucrats are constantly trying to optimise their behaviour to please this big other, even though they might not individually agree with their behaviour. Like, I find find this idea interesting. It's just a bit... Like, when things get a bit too psychoanalytic, I think yeah, you could be... Like, other things could describe this too. Like, sure, the big other system might describe it, but other things could too. (laughs) How did you find the big other... Being introduced. I didn't find it all that convincing. <laughs> I, also, I hope I did a good job of conveying what the big and little other are. As I said at the start of this episode, I I haven't had much contact with Lacan intentionally. And when I do come into contact
1: with him, my, my avoidance of him seems like a good idea. Yeah, so I'm going to be honest. Like, my brain switched off for this part of the book. <laughs> it's just like I just started. My, like, my eyes were going over the words. but like i yeah mm-hmm. yeah it was like mm-hmm. uh, not about yet. this stuff like i already don't like psychoanalysis let alone like psychoanalysis yeah. with this like it's like psycho social it's just like uh i was like yeah, mm-hmm. okay whatever like maybe you know like but it also just seems like um unfalsifiable just like you know like whatever um, so yeah i mean it's it's a yeah. fun it's a fun it's a fun thing to think about, but i don't i don't put much weight in that, but good description like well done, I believe you, I <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> should we quickly mention dream work and memory yeah. and then move on
0: or oh, i'd uh, yeah, I didn't really like this. do you want to go over it' it's like a lot of the dream work and memory thing didn't seem that specific to capitalism to me 'cause like. Uh, a lot of it seemed to be him saying, under capitalism, people's sense of events is so fractured that they can almost, using dream work, so in a dream you can have all these really discordant things happen one after the other, and at the time it just seems perfectly natural because you just forget what was happening previously. It's only when you wake up and you remember the dream that you think, oh, that was really discordant. How could I have been conscious in that without seeing this discrepancy? And he says, under capitalism. We need to, we view things as dream work because of the discordance. He uses the, uses the example of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown being slimy. And it's like, yeah, but is, is this particular to capitalism? I mean, you just, you think about the sort of people who want to exert power over others, you know, namely people who go into politics. Has there been any point at which they were trustworthy on the whole? Mm. Probably, uh, there's probably mm. not specific to to capitalist realism. I guess that's cynicism. So mate, I'm just expressing my, uh, my complete ensconcement within capitalist realism when I say that. He also talks about the, I think, the dream work required to hold in mind neoliberal and neoconservative positions. So neoliberal positions, he says, ones that are quite desacralizing. So they're just amor- explicitly amoral, just looking for markets, I would disagree with that characterization of neoliberalism because I think neoliberalism has a lot of moral assumptions built into it that even if its, mm. its practitioners don't say yeah. Yeah. that they're there, they're definitely there. Like, even the thing of, oh, well, you, you should have liberal governments, yeah. that is a highly yeah. morally charged statement. Like, that, that's very yeah. normative or morally normative just because some people... Don't say so doesn't mean that it, it doesn't carry with it like a bunch of ethical assumptions. So like I disagree with it that characterization there, but for the purposes of conveying what Fisher's saying, we'll just assume that neoliberalism is completely amoral, just looking to make make fat stacks anywhere you can. And he says somehow people believe in that, but also believe in neoconservatism, which is a, a much more explicitly moral um Worldview. It's like, let's fucking invade a country mm-hmm. because mm. they're not democratic enough. Uh, let's we'll base policy around church-going Christianity, for example. Even with this, like the whole dream work thing might be more a reflection of Fisher being a very philosophically aware man, assuming that other people are similarly philosophically aware. So most people, I assume, who would be voting for a fusionist, I thought of this in the context of like Cold War fusionism, how you had an alliance between really, really militaristic people and and people like militaristic people who were socially conservative with libertarians. And there was kind of this agreement of, okay, the libertarians can have the economy, the conservatives can have social matters and that fusionist consensus held during the Cold War. It's fraying a bit now, but it's held for a while. This neoliberalism plus neoconservatism thing reminded me of that, in that a lot of it at the the political level, in terms of people negotiating with each other, it seemed to me of an alliance of people who have different beliefs but felt their interests coincided enough that they would cooperate on stuff. Like with Reaganism or something like that being an example. Then at the at the level of people who would vote for in the case of Reaganism, like Republicans, most of them probably aren't thinking about this. Yeah. Like most of them probably aren't thinking, oh, well, what are the what are the philosophical implications of me supporting both neoliberalism and neoconservatism? It, it could be a few things. One, people might just not be thinking about it. Two, someone might like one of those things and say, Oh, well, this party, I might not agree with everything, but they've got Gee, I love that neoliberal program. Voters. I love I that going, so I ignore the, the neoconservative <laughs> aspects. God damn, I love neoliberalism. That is it. Direct quote <laughs> of everyone who voted for yeah. that. So um, this bit felt weaker because it just felt like a someone who's very philosophically aware Trying to generalize that intense philosophical awareness Mm. to all of society.
1: Yeah, I found this not compelling either. And uh, yeah, and I I think like there's also not necessarily anything unique. Like you could, you know, and maybe that's a flaw with the argument. You could use these same exact arguments for any society with their dominant paradigm. Mm. So, Mm. yeah,
0: yeah. I, I didn't like this section much and it's a, it was a stand up because i i liked yeah, basically every last, other chapter that, in this book was like quite the second a lot last chapter or something like that second Ooh. last yeah then you get to marxist supernanny nanny, <laughs> he talks about like how a marxist version of supernanny would treat society and then offers spinoza as a a really really good
1: model for understanding late capitalist morality
0: <laughs> it is really funny
1: <laughs> did you did you want <laughs> to do want to like touch on that, <laughs> the, the Marxist nanny stuff that you brought it up. A <laughs> and then the last thing to talk about is how to exit and how relevant is sure. it. Yeah, so we're pretty close to done. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I get when he talks about Marxist supernanny. <laughs> so, okay. One of the things that capitalist realism does is it tries to privatise problems. So, okay. Like it, mental they, health or something. Hmm, you're not getting paid enough, for example yeah you're so in capitalist realism it's your fault a marxist reading of things marxists will as a general rule look for structural problem or structural causes of problems so if an individual says i don't have enough money it's my fault under capitalist realism a marxist is more likely to say okay well structurally what are the reasons why this person is not like doesn't have enough money they don't have enough resources to Live, for example. Similarly, so he, to illustrate how a Marxist would approach these sort of problems in a systemic way, he uses the, the, the example of Super Nanny. I vaguely remember Super Nanny from when I was a kid. For those who are not old enough to to should be aware of the grandeur of Super Nanny, it's basically a reality TV program where you had you had fed up parents with ratty kids bring in the super nanny who was a Kind of like a prototypically strict British woman who would, who would <laughs> whip him into shape. And what what Fisher is saying here is basically what capitalist realism would do to try to solve the problem of poorly behaved children would be to privatize their problems and to say, well, the children are just not behaving rationally enough. And Fisher says. With children, you just assume hedonic stupidity. Like, <laughs> a five-year-old is just going to run towards whatever is most sugary, whatever is the softest, whatever has the, is making the loudest noises, whatever is the most brightly coloured. I guess <laughs> Fisher is also saying that is the, the consumer in capitalism mm-hmm. as well. You mm-hmm. just assume hedonic stupidity. In this part, he's saying basically that like capitalism conflates immediate individual mm. desire with what people truly want which is an interesting question to ask it's just where i get off is the assumption that or oh, there's going to be someone who knows better than you who's going to be mm. <laughs> telling you that, like this is what you're going to be having uh, that's where that's where i get a little bit more suspicious so where the marxist thing comes in so in the context of supernanny supernanny is the marxist so supernanny is the one looking at the structure of the family and saying well structurally you you say providing not providing your mm, children with sufficient mm, mm. discipline, which is why they're misbehaving. They don't know what they want. They need they need someone who structurally understands how things working to impose a structure that makes them behave in a way that is good for them, good for their parents, makes everyone happy. So I fa- I found it very funny that he <laughs> he uses super nanny to describe the Marxist way of viewing things
1: from a structural perspective. I found that. Mm-hmm. very very weird connection to highly me that to memorable supernanny. that was, that was uh, really excellent. yeah my only real comment about that is like well you see why like it becomes so totalitarian <laughs> like if this is like you think it's a, a yeah, good solution yeah yeah to the problem is to go with marxist supernatural for a society like and of course the people who are going to be in charge of like the supernanny apparatus are going to be the most about Marxists, the ones who know it the best like of course you know maybe it's Mark, Mark Fisher and he, like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I mean, it was again, like some the later chapters I thought were weaker, but we kind of had some fun, some interesting things to think about, but we're... so one thing I did want to mm. touch on is that we mentioned many times uh, in the conversation is the idea of like how to exit. So it's not super concrete. Like it's fairly. Yeah. 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 Intellectual. But maybe we could just touch on that and explain. It's his very reasoning. intellectual. And I, I viewed this as
0: he was he was calling for a greater consideration of how to exit capitalist realism and was trying to start that process with this book. So I don't view it as a flaw that he didn't detail minutely how you would go about all of these things. Mm. He mm, very mm. much viewed it this this is a starting point for breaking if- capitalist realism. He had three places where you could bring capitalist realism into conflict with the real to try to, to, break, like this to break this to totalizing. Break a or something like, a, yeah, uh,
1: like an illusion, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he said as soon as you can crack it anywhere, as soon as you can provide any evidence that actually there are alternatives, then you, you break capitalist realism. Because that's, that's how you you oppose it without being immediately commodified Mm. and sold back into capitalism is by breaking the spell of capitalist realism. The first he said was ecological catastrophe. He says that capitalism's need for endless growth means that it inevitably leads to ecological degradation and environmental destruction and that there is politicization happening around ecological matters, but most of it is actually, like everything else in capitalist realism, just becoming PR. It's becoming pure aesthetics that are just sold back to people. I should also add, when he says politicization, he means political, like people organizing themselves into groups with the intention of effecting political change and hopefully overcoming capitalism. That's the that's what he means when he says he wants to politicise an issue. He then also says mental illness is another place where capitalism can be brought into contact with the real. He says that capitalist modes of social relations, and especially late capitalism, just breeds, particularly mm. depression mm. and anxiety. He says that these aren't individual problems. They're treated as individual problems, because on one hand, it it absolves capitalism of any sort of responsibility for these mental diseases, but also it provides a market it, yeah. for the sale of mm. pharmaceuticals to treat them. He makes a really interesting point. He says that, of course, all mental illnesses are physically instantiated. He's not saying you know, like there's that it's, it's made up in some way. He's saying, yes, it, it is physically instantiated, but he says we're not mm, actually looking at the mm, social causes. Mm. of why are these mental illnesses increasing in, in prevalence, which is a legitimate question. It's like, it's not, it's not a given that human beings just suddenly all become miserable at greater and greater and greater rates. Mm, that mm. there's probably
1: a there, And there. the final one was, uh, oh, sorry, go on. So he says oh, I was just going to say the, yeah. the last one was beautiful. No, 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 go We on covered quite a lot. So the idea is like you-, you yeah. And for me, the, yeah. the bureaucracy yeah, yeah, is one of the most compelling ones, actually. <laughs> so like that yeah, should it's, be it's happening. Like, his idea of exit, I suppose, then is like at least the first part of it. Even though he didn't give any concrete prescriptions about like what to do, or he didn't actually give like an alternative system. But I guess his first step is like to puncture mm. a hole through this ideological spell with.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I guess the first step to that is you need to be able yeah. to conceive of an alternative system, and capitalist realism stops that happening. So, so you've got to understanding- break capitalist realism, and so mm. if you take him within
1: yeah. his yeah, framework, that, he thinks this that is makes first, lot like, sense. his readers need to like uh, mm. break through that mental, I suppose, mental barrier. Um, did you find Did you find that idea of this like exit? this this exit idea uh interesting. Very, very
0: interesting. Cause so in part, I find it cool because reading Nick Land, Nick Land is obsessed with exit. And so it's it's cool seeing other CCRU people also what is it with this carrying universe, the torch like, and... <laughs> <laughs> like
2: the
0: Not even it Warwick just, University. It was just, just a really particular group of, of fucking weirdos yeah, like yeah. Nick Land, Sadie Plant, <laughs> and Mark Fisher um so that was good i do find it interesting thinking about are there particularly with problems that i regard as if not solved but then really hard to see other engineering solutions to like out resource allocation thinking about okay well how am i blind here what am i not what am i unable to see and the the call to overcome capitalist realism is in part a call to try to try to deal with that. And so I find it really interesting trying to think about my own blind spots. And so this this naturally plays into that. Also within his system how he came up with solutions to capitalist realism I just I find really interesting that he he thought out a particular system and then tried to work out okay, how do you break this thing that is so Flexible and so capable of incorporating resistance to it into itself, I thought that was cool. The ecological stuff, I find, I, f- I found the possible breaks of excessive bureaucracy and mental health the most compelling ones, because people people just are more and more miserable. That that does seem to be a real thing, and the and that is despite capitalism. Or at least many in our society saying, "Well, this is a system that fulfills your desires. You have so much choice mm, mm, to to fulfill mm. yourself with." And then the the bureaucracy, as we've talked about a lot, is is something that is stated. A, a, the, the stated goal or right? a stated goal is to reduce bureaucracy, and it just keeps appearing everywhere, and is getting more and more invasive, and more and more personal, more and more demanding of of affective change as well as mm. as well as I guess mm. procedural change
1: what about you what did you think of this formulation yeah I guess of- Yeah, taking his priors as a given about the importance of mm. the real versus realities I suppose um, I can see where he's coming from in terms of like the, the, the need to yeah you can
0: see how he got there
1: uh, offer substantial substantive criticisms that can't be subsumed by the same capitalist, realist, like, uh, like intellectual mach- machinery that like consumes other things like, uh, like we were saying about interpassivity and stuff. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I guess <laughs> to me, it was also like, yeah, like that's fair enough, but also like it's, it's highly academic, you know, it's like, sometimes these academic things is like maybe you're pointing mm. out some real issues, but like in terms of like this actual exit strategy, it's like, yes, sure. You need to break, puncture, like the, uh, the illusion, uh, lift the spell, but also like practically speaking, you know, most people aren't so intellectually oriented and like hang out with Nick Land and stuff. And they need something a little bit more than just like, um, puncturing like uh, dispelling the illusion they they need, like, okay, so how should we organize (laughs) it? Like, how should, how should we solve these problems? You know, maybe he's just, Yeah. yeah. obviously that wasn't a part of his problem situation. He's much earlier in the, except I think not at least like offering like one chapter in the book about like, okay, here are some thinkers that are like floating different things or, or, you know, to me, I just felt like that was, the 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 practicality of it um was really lacking and i would have liked to maybe other people have picked up his thinking and like tell you, okay we've we've dispelled the illusion mm. of capitalist realism now we're actually working on like like concrete alternatives and stuff um but yeah i i would have liked to have seen him yeah do that because otherwise without that it's it just feels extremely extremely to- academic
0: yeah to that i guess i probably have two comments one is he did offer some concrete action. So he offered the idea of the bureaucratic strike, which I found really cool. So people turn up to work and, continue, and perform the tasks that they are ostensibly at work to perform, like teaching children, for example, or taking care of patients in a medical setting, but not completing the bureaucratic paperwork around them. I thought that was a cool idea and a really interesting idea for a strike to actually hamstring the bureaucratic apparatus that is making your job harder while also performing the job that you are actually paid to do, or at least notionally paid to do. So he had, he had some practical things. In terms of the academic nature, I guess it, it's more just how I view social change happening. Social change seems to mostly happen when small groups of highly motivated people organise with each other. And in that case, things like this probably could motivate that sort of cell, like a highly motivated cell, like say the Bolshevik party, like that, 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 were tiny. Like they called themselves the big party, but they were still like very much occupying a minority position, but there were a small group of highly motivated people who were, who had a high degree of ideological um, concordance with one another who were yeah, able to affect a lot of change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's reasonable.
0: Yeah. So I guess like it it could hmm. it could help nucleate a like a yeah. highly effective small organized cell who could then go on to to agitate and to to inspire say people who are just less academically inclined and aren't going to read about the big other and go oh yeah that sounds good that <laughs> they might be able to make something that's more public facing than this which is like while it is written to be digestible it is still. It's still a book that heavily references like continental mm, philosophy mm. and psychoanalysis. Like it's
1: it's accessible mm, 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 within a niche. <laughs> so but let's wrap it up. Let's wrap. This has been a big episode. This, anybody who's let's stuck wrap around, it up. whether this, or not it's this has been a, a big one. A double. A we, double haven't done, episode we haven't done. We haven't done it in a half. We might have to cut this in like half this for a while, too fast or something. We'll see. Anyways, if you stuck around to the end of the conversation, thank you. <laughs> Just, three and a half like, hours. I of like a four single hour, episode. Four hour, <laughs> it will cut into. All right. So I've got three closing questions yeah, there if yeah. you want to look in the notes. I've got the closing question there. But, like, first closing question. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. How is capitalist realism still relevant today? And if so, to what degree and why? I think
0: it's still the things he brought up in this are still very relevant. There's probably less a feeling of stultification as there, culturally as there was probably in like 2010 to 2015 or something like that. Like it, it does feel like more things are moving. Maybe just because of this podcast, I've come into contact with some of these like alternative schools of thought more than I had in the past. So it might also just be a measurement problem. But to me, it feels like particularly the hard right is organizing is intellectually trying to form alternate alternative structures to at least liberal capitalism, if not capitalism, fundamentally. So I can see groups of people trying to come up with alternatives. I feel like much of the left has, because because it's become highly establishment, at least in the West, the that sanctimonious left is just much less anti-capitalist. So I guess in that sense too, Capitalist realism is still relevant in that you can still see notional anti-capitalism actually being highly establishment and reinforcing capitalism. In terms of the bureaucracy he brings up, that has just gotten worse. So that, like that point of distinction between reality and the real is still there for the taking. <laughs> mental, mental illness has just gotten worse. In terms of the environment, I feel like there's a lot more PR and advertising dedicated to it. So I guess, like, I guess that's in like in his paradigm, that's yeah, yeah. capital realism. It really greenwashing. Yeah, work. it really is. Hey, hey, it's it's yeah. undermining <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's
1: still relevant.
0: How about yeah, you? I think
1: so. Like, at least the the parts of the book that we focus on. Um, maybe not the stuff to. Yeah. Mm. And I guess also like to preface this. Sorry for cutting you off.
0: Like within his paradigm. Particularly, like if you just if you take his paradigm as
1: true, then it's still very relevant. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I'd say the specific things he talks about uh, still seem to be persistent. But, um, and I, I I see those those things that he like interpassivity, cynicism, and all that sort of stuff. Sure. I guess it depends whether or not you think like. This capitalist realism ideological cage that we're in from his point of view, whether or not that's actually a thing, and because obviously mm. if it is a thing, then it's still relevant it maybe even it's gone it's gone worse potentially um and uh mm. yeah so but i but I guess like to me it sort of hinges on like, yeah, yeah, there's an ideological component which is important to talk about um but there as I said before, there are actually like pretty practical things that need to take into consideration and like just dismissing Mm. them as quote-unquote capitalist realism doesn't deal with the concrete issues of like distributing resources and and stuff like that. So, yeah, (laughs) like that's pretty important. Yes. (laughs) So it really is like
0: for me where I struggle and this is like I guess he'd call this capitalist realism. Like, for me, I guess, where you would identify in me capitalist realism is I can't see a way around limited resources with alternate uses need distribution. And when he talks about particularly, like, the need to rediscover a general will and to rule for the general will, that's when I just say, like, I'm out, I'm, I'm done. So I guess I'll like, bring this on to okay question two, closing
1: question two, which is close, closing thoughts and reflections. yeah. Do you want me to go? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Closing thoughts mm. and reflections. So
0: I really liked this book. I think it's really, it's well-written, very clear. He manages to make discussions of like accessible. Lacan and yeah. stuff like that clear, which is, yeah, accessible, which is impressive. He's a good diagnostician. Whether I think, I'm still not sure. And again, this is in part because it's, I don't know whether it's an unfalsifiable claim, but the claim that basically, if I were to be uncharitable, if you disagree with me, it's because you're part of capitalist realism, and if yeah, you agree like, with me, like it's like class because interest, or you've, oh, that's you've sort seen of past it, yeah, is very very hard, if not impossible, yeah. to argue against. And, and it doesn't take your opinion
1: so, seriously, like it doesn't.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's like I'll I'll be charitable to Fisher because he seemed like. I liked his book. He seems to be actually yep. trying to solve problems. like he doesn't seem malicious. So I'll assume he's not trying to be, yeah, yeah, completely intransigent like that. But it's still for me, resource allocation is an inescapable problem, and at least his hints at solutions of needing to distribute according to a general will I'm highly, highly suspicious of. and even the claim that any any of my criticism, because my criticism is coming from the perspective of someone who's much more amenable to capitalism than Fisher was, that the ability to just dismiss that as saying, oh, you're in the thrall of capitalist realism because you disagree, I I do dislike even accepting that it might be a real thing and that like I, I might just be able to not see it. I might be blind to it. Mm. 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 It's a very interesting book, highly thought-provoking, definitely in his role as diagnostician he's he's strong i think he definitely picks up on some real things in his role as as someone setting out tactics or, or some sort of strategy as to what to do i think it's really interesting and i think within the context of his system what he says you should do makes a lot of sense i guess i'm still thinking i'm still thinking through to what extent I think
1: capitalist realism is totalizing, as he says, it is. I think it's a great. What about you? Like a, a great framework or a, you know, like a mental model. Mm. As I said before, like don't necessarily have to agree with it in, in its entirety and like some of the you know the givens of like the Marxist theory of um, equivalence values and that sort of stuff. Uh, which is there in the background and there's, you know, there's criticisms of Lacan and that sort of psychoanalysis. Like there's a bunch of baggage that comes along with his point of view. And he kind of, (laughs) he he kind of assumes that his audience are familiar with those ideas. And so it's not really like it's accessible enough that like, if you're a motivated reader like us, like given that I haven't read Lacan and those sorts of people that, I had to just take some time away from the book, look at some concepts see if like, okay, I kind of see what he's talking about. Mm. So there Mm. is, it does feel like there's a bit of like an in, in, in group thing happening with his writing, maybe not as much as other authors, but there's still a bit of that. Um, And, but that's fine, whatever. Um, uh, But in terms of like the core thesis, it's thought provoking. And I think actually like it's, it is. It was a worthwhile read, and as somebody who likes a lot of the benefits of technological capitalism and entrepreneurship and innovation, that sort of stuff, and whatnot, uh, it's a it's a nice countermeasure to just like getting you know gun ho about you know technological acceleration or whatever, um, or like thinking that like. Mm the appropriate mm. way to solve a particular problem is to have like a, a business ontology or something like now I've got these ideas in my head working like, okay, like check myself. Is that really like the best way? Like, does it have to be like that? Um, so yes, from that point of view, uh, very thought provoking. Um,
0: yeah. Mm. I, yeah. Yeah. I'd highly recommend this book. I think this is well, yeah, really I worth reading. for yeah. Last question. For Would we recommend it? I'd recommend
1: it. I recommend it to um, yeah, definitely. probably like any of our listeners who are interested in like economics and libertarianism and that sort of stuff. We've got a few and caps and whatnot. Uh, give it a read. Like it's an interesting thought-provoking thing. Um, and yeah, like some, something that like, you know, like say like I never see libertarians thinking through some of these issues and maybe they've got a pre-baked solution to all of his Problems that he's noted, but yeah, I would recommend it still. All right, nice marathon episode. All right, that's all. I three, wonder if our listeners are as three tired hours as us. <laughs> I hope you're not. <laughs> thanks for listening. Yeah, I'm- <laughs> thanks-, <laughs> thanks for listening. Um, next week we have something. Thank, way thank you for listening. <laughs> it's yeah, a good way to spend a Sunday a afternoon. Day, sorry. <laughs> um, we have something about like something funny and not so. We've, so we've done it. All right. We've got stupid stuff. Yeah, we've got yeah, yeah. we've got <laughs> stupid right. stuff coming up.
0: We've got plenty of stupid yeah, yeah. stuff. Right. Thanks to for listening. Out Thanks for listening. Stuff. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next time.